Chris and Jim would like to dedicate episode 5 of the Six String Hayride podcast to our parents who taught us about this music when we were kids, to the family and friends that we share this music with in the present, and for the future of this music to my daughter and to Chris's niece. We hope that this music will follow them around their whole lives and be a part of their story as they go through the world. Of course, we'd love to thank the musicians who gave us all this fantastic music that inspire us. And for all you folks out there keeping your circle unbroken, whether it's in your family, your community, in your little corner of the world, keep up the good fight. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Six String Hayride podcast with Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. Join us on a journey through the world of classic country music. We will be talking about murder, prison, love, death, trains, horses, dancing, drinking, guitar picking, and the all-time great albums of country music. Stay tuned at the end of the episode. We'll be giving out recipes from the June Carter Johnny Cash Family Cookbook. Before we get into today's episode, which Chris will be introducing shortly, there are some things that happen in the world of music that transcend all boundaries, all genres, all any attempt to divide anything. There are some things that are just so universal in music that they touch all types of music and most music lovers in a way that really matters. On January 10th of 2023, the music world lost guitar legend Jeff Beck. This It's a big blow to music everywhere, certainly to guitar music. Chris and myself decided that part of what we were going to call the podcast would involve the term six string, a very specific guitar reference, a type of music and an instrument that has shaped a lot of our love of music over the years. And if you want to talk about the musician, the guitar player that most other professional guitar players refer to as the guitarist guitarists, we are talking about Jeffrey Arnold Beck, born in June of 1944 in England, twice inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Yardbirds, where he got his start as Eric Clapton's replacement. solo work. He's heavily influenced and very publicly in a friendship and mutual admiration society with Scotty Moore, Cliff Gallup, the great guitar player from all the Gene Vincent records, Steve Cropper from Booker T and the MGs, and of course at the top of that list is Les Paul. The two men were very close friends, and Jeff Beck did an incredibly deliberate, respectful, loving, well-executed, 
imitation of Les Paul's playing in a tribute concert that he did in New York just shortly after Les Paul had passed. Uh, it's called Jeff Beck's Rock and Roll Party, a tribute to Les Paul. It's a collaboration with the Irish singer Imelda May, who doubles the Mary Ford parts from the original records. It's one of the incredible things that Beck did over a very long career. He's mostly known for his rock and roll and his jazz fusion work. But again, as a student of Les Paul and of Cliff Gallup, the Les Paul tribute album is fantastic. And the work he does to honor Cliff Gallup and Gene Vincent on a record called Crazy Legs, out of this world. Uh, He goes out of the way to use the same type of amp to get an old Gretsch duo jet guitar to really duplicate the equipment and the recording equipment that would have been used on those old Gene Vincent records. The results are amazing. Again, the record is called Crazy Legs, and we're going to play a clip of Jeff Beck's solo from the song Cruisin'. The man is also known over the years for really encouraging a lot of younger musicians and, in fact, having a lot of younger and female musicians in his band. He was a big help in starting the career of guitar player Jennifer Batten and then Australian bassist Tal Winkenfeld, Rhonda Smith, again, the Irish singer Imelda May. The body of work is all over the place in a good way. You have the straight 60s rock of the Yardbirds. You have the power, soul, blues, almost heavy metal extravaganza that is the Truth and Beckola album. It's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes are going to be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Jeff Beck gives Rod Stewart to the world, and Ron Wood gets his start as a bass player in this group. He goes on through the 70s to collaborate with producer George Martin and do Blow by Blow and Wired. that the great two album run in his career he finishes the 70s with there and back again doesn't do a lot through the 80s but comes back strong with an album called guitar shop and a tour with stevie ray vaughn as the opening act through the 90s and the 2000s beck is busier than he's ever been touring a lot he participated in the eric clapton crossroads festivals a lot and when he would take the stage with clapton Steve Winwood 
any of the other people that were there. There was Jeff Beck and there were his friends that were hanging out and jamming with him. Uh, an extraordinary presence. Again, the guitarist, guitarist, uh, a great loss for music lovers. Jeff Beck passed away January 10th of 2023. Lots of kind thoughts and good vibes to his family and friends. And of course, for us, his audience, we will always have the music. We will always be damn fortunate in that regard. Yeah, I fully agree with everything that you said there. When I was younger, Jeff Beck was somebody that I was aware of, but not somebody that I listened to a whole lot. I was probably somewhere in my early to mid 20s when I actually started listening to the guitar work that Beck had been doing for all those years at that point. Uh, of course, I knew the story of the evolution of the guitarists and the Yardbirds. I knew that's where Beck got his start. I knew about the Jeff Beck group, the work he had done with Rod Stewart there, uh, et cetera. But I didn't really become a, a Jeff Beck fan in my formative years. However, I do feel like I was lucky enough to make up for that uh, over the last, over the second half of my life so far, we'll call it. I saw the man twice, and both times I was absolutely, completely blown away. Uh, the first time was in 2007 at the Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival in uh, suburb of Chicago. And then the most recent time was one of the final shows he played prior to his death uh, on the tour that he did with Johnny Depp, uh, saw him in October in Chicago. And both times I just, it's, you have this wiry little guy up there and, you know, he hasn't played with a, he, he has a story where he stopped playing with a pick because he dropped it one time and was just like, nah, what the hell? So you have this little wiry guy up there who's just making these insane tones come out of this guitar. And for anyone who didn't get a chance to see him personally, go on YouTube, seek out some of these video clips that you're going to find. There's just some amazing stuff. This is, there's a reason why certain people are referred to with titles like a guitar player's guitar player. Like this is the guy that, other musicians would go to see when he was in town because they wanted to watch how he did what he did, even though every single one of them knew damn well they couldn't duplicate it. Uh, I read uh, a tribute that Warren Haynes posted uh, earlier today, or perhaps he posted it yesterday, but I read it earlier today. And one of the things he talked about was how, you know, he was a huge Jeff Beck fan growing up. And he actually, at one point, made the conscious decision not to listen to too much of Beck's music because he was afraid he would start to unconsciously try to play like Jeff Beck. And he knew that he was never going to be able to pull that off and that it would sound like a cheap imitation. Um, so Warren, on the off chance that you ever hear these words, uh, I hope you're listening to all the Jeff Beck you want to now. Uh, it's a big loss for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, folks, because this is our show and we're the hosts and we can make these types of decisions. 
Let's close out this segment with the guitar solo from Jeff Beck's take on the great Les Paul track, How High the Moon. Welcome back to the Hayride. Last time we went over my top 20 list. This time we're going to be going over Jim's top 20 list. Jim, why don't you tell us how you selected the records that we're going to be hearing about? An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, listeners, we've talked a lot about how these lists come together what purpose they serve, how much fun it is to make them, and equally how much fun it is to take them apart. We had the Rolling Stone list where we looked at their top 20, and Chris and I, we were in agreement with about seven of those 20, so roughly one-third, where either the album itself or the artist in question uh, was also a part of lists that Chris and I did individually. What you're trying to do when you're making a all-time top anything list, mostly you're trying to share your personal passion and convictions over whatever it is, a, a movie, a record, a book, a TV show, whatever. The trick to me is that you're able to have some balance of the objective and the subjective one, because you are trying to persuade other people that your list has thoughtful merit and folks should go out and listen to the records you're recommending. The other thing is it really becomes a one-sided conversation if you just say, well, I love these records only because my parents played them when I was young or I was holding hands with Peggy Sue while walking around the county fair when I heard this record. If you're really trying to make a case for something, you should be able to come up with some more thoughtful reasons. If you explain your love for the Beatles by saying, oh, that George Harrison is really cute, and I love the way they shake their hair around when they sing, that's fantastic. And those are good enough reasons for a lot of people, but you're rather missing the point of the merits of the actual body of work, the art itself. So again, that's why I'm trying to come up with some amount of objective justification for the choices that I'm making. Some of the things I'm looking at are, does the artist in question invent something new within the world of country music, or do they guarantee that a core element of country music will move to a new generation? Some of these albums are what I would consider bridge-type albums. They pay tribute to and define something important from the past in the music, but they're also handing off the keys to a new generation, and that keeps that music alive and moving. I think that's a very important criteria because, again, part of what we're calling these lists is all time. 
So there has to be some element of timelessness of it lasting beyond its shelf life in the marketplace or the lifetime of the musician who creates it. I think another important criteria is, is there a combination of sales success of it selling in the marketplace combined with critical support and reviews from the professional community and popular support from the audience, from the fan base. If you have some combination of those three in varying degrees, it, it's not always going to be sales with a lot of these folks, but if you have some combination of those three, it's a good indicator that you're looking in the right places. I think the other criteria would be, can you point to the records you pick or the musicians you pick not only as being innovative, but their influence? Do their peers talk about them? Do the musicians that come after them talk about them? Think of the way younger people now speak of the songwriting of Hank Williams, the guitar playing of Chet Atkins the power in the voice of somebody like George Jones or Johnny Cash. That's the kind of quality we're looking for. So with all that being said... You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. So here at number 20 on Jim's list, here's an album we've talked about quite a lot. Rolling Stone talked about it, I talked about it, and now Jim's going to talk about it. At number 20... Lucinda Williams with Car Wheels on a Gravel Road from 1998. Car Wheels on a Gravel Road Car Wheels on a Gravel Road It's an excellent album that brings us into the future of country music. It is Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road from 1998. This record spent five months on the Billboard 200 chart. It did receive a lot of excellent critical reviews. It also was the biggest selling album of her career. Uh, in recent years, Lucinda Williams, due to health reasons, has not been working quite as much. But this is an extraordinary record that is a cohesive whole of the kind of murky and complicated and conflicting life in the South. You have songs of great passion and joy, like Right in Time. Oh. This is a song where her voice sounds downright sexy and downright sandpaper at the same time. And the two things for her just work fantastically. It is a love song with a real aching quality to it, but the arrangement is very modern. 
uh, kind of like those sultry Chris Isaac ballads from 20, 30 years ago. It has a quality that's very kind of earthy and raw. I stand over the stove in the kitchen Watch the water boil and I listen Turn off the television But because it's a newer record, there is a certain amount of polish in the production. And uh, the production of this record is kind of an odd story in and of itself. Another young but established star in country music at this point in the late 90s is the great Steve Earle. Uh, we talked about his record, Guitar Town, with Chris's list. Steve Earle was brought in to produce and collaborate with Lucinda. On paper, it seemed like an excellent idea. The short version, we've talked about this before, is that she wanted somebody to coach and encourage her vocal style. And Steve Earle was not that patient. He had a touring schedule coming up. He thought he was coming in to record a few songs that were all ready to go. And when things didn't meet eye to eye, he wound up having to leave with a record not quite finished. That brings in a couple people who through the late 90s and early 2000s really become an important key ingredient in a lot of the great country music of this time. Emmy Lou Harris comes in to provide backing vocals. Her career starts in the early 70s with Graham Parsons. By this point in her career, she is kind of changing from being one of the younger hippie types who got into folk music and then country through the 70s to now she's an established institution. She's become one of the older guard, one of the mentors. You can hear her vocals on this record. And, and again, a lot of records from this late 90s, early 2000s period. And she's a big influence and a big supporter of a lot of younger artists. This is a perfect example. Go back to Greenville. She also serves a similar role to Alison Krauss, and that's something we'll be talking about a little later. When you bring in Emmy Lou Harris to work on a project around this time in her career, you get the bonus of getting Buddy Miller, guitar player, producer, arranger, and Rodney Crowell, guitarist, producer, arranger. These guys have collaborated a lot with Emmy Lou through the middle part of her career. She brings them on board to this project with Lucinda Williams, and they, in turn, for mixing and for keyboard overdubs, turn the record over to Roy Batan from the E Street Band. So we've pointed out a lot on the Hayride that good music is good music, and it's kind of a constant, unbroken circle all the way around. And if you can go from Lucinda Williams working on getting her career back on track after some record label shenanigans, and all of a sudden you've got the keyboard player from the E Street Band mixing and doing a lot of the post-production work, yeah, 
the music is one continuous circle at that point. The other song that was a big deal on this record is called Can't Let Go. On a lot of indie rock stations, especially in the South and Midwest, WXRT here in Chicago was a good example. They played that track as if it were a huge smash hit everywhere. They were just really supportive of the record and of Lucinda. Can't Let Go is kind of a rockabilly take on a very constant and classic theme in country music. Two people realize that a relationship is over for whatever reason, one of them or both of them has an absolute impossible time walking away, even knowing that there's no rebounding, there's no saving this. One of the classics of this type we've talked about is For the Good Times and Loretta Lynn's version of that. Lucinda Williams really takes that type of song, that subject matter, and brings it up to date with a really rocking yet sad and kind of tugging at the heart song in Can't Let Go. You don't ever want to talk to me Well, it's old. No, it's Go. He won't take me back when I come around Says he's sorry, then he puts me out I got a big chain around the neck And I'm broken down like a train wreck This is a record that covers a lot of the emotional ground Of the conflicting cultural ideas in the South You have longing, you have loss, you have joy You have a song in Car Wheels on a Gravel Road that balances the wonderful morning smell of bacon and eggs with being surrounded by an unhealthy domestic abuse type environment. The songwriting here is excellent. Uh, the production, even though it was kind of a mixed bag and kept getting handed off to different people, you can't tell unless you know the story because it's just a seamless, wonderful album. She really helps to bring quality country music and the themes in the songwriting through the late 90s and into the early 2000s. We talk about this record a lot because it's a damn good one and it's a damn good recent one, which makes it even more rare. Go out and take a listen. Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Yeah, and I'd also like to point out that we've encouraged Hayride listeners to send in their own top 20 lists. And the top 20 list that we've received so far uh, from one of our listeners, which we'll, we'll start publishing these on our Facebook page pretty soon, but it also included this album. So Rolling Stones recommended it. I've recommended it. Jim's recommended it. It's listener recommended. Go listen. Mr. Johnson sings over the corner by the bar. So they sold the devil so he can play guitar. Too cool to be forgotten. Hey, hey. Too cool to be forgotten. Moving on to number 19 on Jim's list. It's an artist that I'm not surprised to see here at all. Uh, it's an artist that was on my list, an artist that was on Rolling Stone's list, 
And I actually chose an album from this series as well. At number 19, Jim has Johnny Cash with American Recordings from 1994, his first collaboration with Rick Rubin. Jim, why don't you tell us why this one made your list? Yes. Uh, number 19, Johnny Cash, American Recordings. It's impossible for Chris or I to not show our respect for Johnny uh, and for June. And as Chris put it so perfectly in the last episode, uh, we love Johnny Cash. It, we were just kind of born that way. That's that's how these things work. Uh, he is a fixed point in the universe, and thank the powers that be for that. Johnny starts his recording career in the mid-1950s. By the time we get to 1994 in American Recordings, this is his 81st album. This is a man who does not shy away from writing songs and doing the work of getting them onto tape. The odd thing about this, though, is 81st album, this is his first album that is completely solo. It's just Cash and him playing acoustic guitar. I don't want no aggravation When my train has left the station If you're there or not, I may not even know If you have ever wondered, well, he had Luther Perkins, he had Carl Perkins, he had Bob Wooten, he's had all these great guitar players. When this record first came out, just to listen to Johnny sing and play guitar all on his own, the world had never really heard that in his recording career. And that was a fantastic, revealing thing that just showed another layer of the man's power as a musician and a storyteller. Now, when this record comes out in 1994, Johnny had been in kind of a not-so-great period in his recording career. In the 80s, he had severed ties with Columbia, who he'd been recording for for a long, long time, but since he left Sun Records in the late 50s. He was picked up by Mercury Records, who didn't really seem to know what to do with him. And there were a few of these really odd albums that seemed cheesy Jesus or cheesy patriotic. And it's really, and Cash acknowledged this himself in interviews, just kind of an unfocused period where he thought he knew what he wanted to do, but the people that were helping him produce, record, and arrange were not quite on board, and they were trying to push more of what they thought would be a commercial element to sell records, you know, very far down the road in a career that started in the 50s, had a first renaissance period in 1968 and 69, with his sobriety, courtesy of Maybell Carter, his marriage to June Carter, and then the incredible double powerhouse achievement of Live at Folsom and then Live at San Quentin. And Johnny rode that wave through the 70s, but yeah, mid-late 80s, kind of a downtime for him. Again, Mercury Records not very supportive or encouraging of what he was trying to do. So in the early 90s, 
we have a Johnny Cash who in Europe, especially to English and Irish audiences, is playing at Wembley Arena, other large venues that are holding, you know, 10, 15,000 people. Here in the States in the early 90s, Johnny is playing in small bars, county fairs, resort casino type shows, that kind of thing. I had the amazing good fortune to see Johnny in June four times between 1991 and 1994, and never in a place that had more than a thousand people. It was an extraordinary thing. And I kept wondering, though, why is he selling out arenas in parts of Europe? And here I can literally pay $30, ride my bicycle to a bar across the street from Wrigley Field, the baseball stadium here in Chicago, and stand 15 feet away from one of the greatest figures in any kind of music ever. And I got to tell you, that first time I saw him, I'd been listening to his music through my dad since I was a little kid. I would have been in my late 20s the first time I saw him. And being that close to the stage and looking up, to this day, I am convinced that Johnny Cash was about 30 feet tall and just projected this light and this power that would have filled Chicago itself. Uh, the charisma and the combination of the talent and certainly the singing voice. Boy, that is just one of those things that just blows you away. And then 1994 happens. Rick Rubin, who was very big in the hip-hop community, had worked with the Beastie Boys, sees that Johnny is still an important and relevant musical figure and one of Rubin's musical heroes. So he approaches Cash and says, let me just record you in your house, playing guitar, do some songs that you wrote. I'm going to ask around, see if other people want to give you some songs, and let's just see what happens. So in 1994, if you ask around to great songwriters and see who's looking to do one for Johnny Cash to sing, well, let's see. You get Tom Waits. You get Nick Lowe. You get old Cash friend Chris Christopherson. You get Leonard Cohen. And if I, if I have been unkind, I just hope you will let it go by. Not a bad bunch. And again, these are great songwriters that were like, I can write one for Johnny Cash. I, yeah, I'll pay him 10 bucks. It's um, it's a real testament to the man's talent. When this record came out, I was, I think, equally thrilled to death and equally pissed off in a huge way. When And, and I think this is true in a lot of fan bases. If you are really into somebody and you know they're not super big, they're not huge like Elvis famous, you know you have it good because you can go see that person in a small, intimate venue. You don't have to worry about things selling out. You can go to the record store on the day their record comes out and get it. It's like being in a little club that's kind of in on a secret that only certain people know about. 
the uh, the Frank Zappa audience was always very much like that. So the record comes out, and yeah, I find myself thinking, oh damn, this record's really good. The secret's out. It's going to be impossible to go see him live. It's going to be impossible to get tickets. Blah 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 blah. On the other hand, I'm thinking this is amazing. The rest of the world has actually caught up with me and what I think is important in music. And I'll be damned if this guy doesn't deserve all the love and attention he can get. So it's a real double-edged sword. You're happy when your person gets the super recognition treatment, but it's a drag when ticket prices go up and availability goes down. And, and that's really what this record was, because all of a sudden Johnny started playing in bigger places here. The record created such momentum that through the rest of the 90s and into the early 2000s, the last few years of Johnny's life, there wound up being about a half a dozen of these records in this American series with Rick Rubin. And they get increasingly better and increasingly varied. You have one record where he's backed by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and it very much takes you back to those old Johnny Cash Sun era sounds. You also have a record that focuses on a lot of the gospel songs he learned from his family as a child. And all of this culminates towards the end of Johnny's life with a cover of the song Hurt. And Chris has mentioned the power of that track, the video that Johnny produced out of it. And it was such an extraordinary victory lap for Cash at the end of his career. I would love to argue that Hurt could not have existed as something in Johnny's catalog without, back on that first American album in 1994, the amazing Nick Lowe composition, The Beast in Me. The Beast in Me Has had to learn to live with pain And how to shelter from the rain This is a song that kind of serves as a part one and part two with Hurt. You can't be empty, desolate, and, and hurt in the way that Johnny describes in that song without first acknowledging how dark and miserable you had to be to get to that point in the first place. And in the twinkling of an eye might have to be restrained. God help the beast in me. This album opens with Johnny just on guitar picking along real slowly and all of a sudden it's if i hadn't a shot poor delia i'd have had her for my wife delia all my life if i hadn't a shot poor delia i'd have had her for my wife delia's gone one more round delia's gone okay johnny way to reach out to the crowd and get them on their feet it's it's powerful and it's classic cash. It's a man with a voice and a story and a guitar, his own songwriting on this record, the brilliant people that were eager to contribute to writing songs for this record. And then you have somebody clever enough in Rick Rubin 
to just say, okay, cash, guitar, chair, microphone, end of story. Through the 90s and into the early 2000s, this series of albums with Ruben continued. It is the second great renaissance for him. It is also the victory lap for him by the time you get to Hurt as a hit single. It's extraordinary. And that whole period of Cash's career, this is where it begins. American Recordings, 1994. You can hear the whistle You can hear the bell From the halls of heaven To the gates of hell And there's room for the forsaken If you're there on time Yeah, I have to agree with everything you said there. And there's a reason why so far Johnny Cash has been mentioned on every episode of this podcast. Uh, my own take on this period in Cash's life, which I have talked about a little bit in past episodes, including my own. But really, if these American recordings never happened, people like us would still listen to and love Johnny Cash. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's still a relatively young fan base out there that was originally brought to Cash's music from this series of records done with Rick Rubin. Maybe that is an important point for the music industry as a whole, stop discarding older artists. A lot of times you'll find they still have something interesting to say and the ability to bring commercial success to a label by saying it. And now here at 18 on Jim's list is an entry into the world of bluegrass music. I think Jim and I have mentioned before that one of our bonding experiences when we first met was talking about bluegrass music. So Jim, why don't you tell us why the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack from the year 2000 made your list and what it means to you? Well, a quick thought about soundtracks, anthologies, and those types of things. This has come up a few times when we're talking about great lists of albums. In the 30s, 40s, 50s, in any type of music, you don't really have the idea of full albums. You have singles. So for folks like Hank Williams or Bill Monroe, if you want to represent the body of work, you're looking at a collection of singles of an anthology. With movie soundtracks, that becomes a little more sketchy in justifying. Typically, a movie soundtrack just pulls songs from an artist's career. If it's a biography movie like the Johnny Cash one, um, Walk the Line, or like the Patsy Cline biography movie with Jessica Lange. You just pull songs from that person's catalog and you put them in movies in appropriate spots. This one was something very deliberately constructed. Uh, the directors of the film, the Coen brothers, and if you don't know their work, oh boy, um, Go out and watch The Big Lebowski. It's an incredible, fun film. They also do Oh Brother, a very different movie, equally fantastic. So the Coen brothers go to T-Bone Burnett, the great producer and big fan of country and Americana-type music, and they say, look, the soundtrack has to be a part of the movie. It is essentially a musical. There are scenes of plot, plot, plot. 
And there's a musical number where the song and the physical action going on during the song serves to further the story. So it really has to be an integral part of the film itself and of the storytelling of the film. So when you have directors team up with a producer of the quality of T-Bone Burnett, and you're deliberately creating a soundtrack that serves to further the story, not just kind of ride alongside, you're going to come up with something that is so good that it really becomes a true album all on its own. This album for me also serves to that idea I spoke of in the introduction of a bridge album. This record celebrates music from an older era with people like Ralph Stanley and John Hartford. It's also pushing that music forward to a new audience with, here we go again, the great lady herself who has carried music from past to future for us, Emmy Lou Harris. Don't you weep, pretty baby. 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 She's long gone with the red shoes on. Gonna need another loving baby. And a young, brilliant, fantastic fiddle player, great singer. She becomes a big celebrity in country music after this period. That's Alison Krauss. Her backing band, Union Station, serves as kind of the house band on a lot of this record. And the guitar player in her band serves as the singing voice for the George Clooney character in the movie. Sorry, ladies, George, many things to many people, but he does not do his own singing in this movie. He pretty but that's not him singing the only lead actor in this movie who does his own singing is tim blake nelson scrawny little guy he's kind of the third wheel in the lead character structure along with clooney and john Turturro. but tim blake nelson does his own singing and they do a version of in the jailhouse now that is so true to the jimmy rogers version it's not an imitation. It's more of a, a very respectful tribute. I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob. He used to steal, gamble, and rob. He thought he was the smartest guy around. Well, I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up. This was a great job singing it. And it takes one of the original songs of country music. Remember, in 1927, it was Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, and that was pretty much it. So to take one of those original foundation songs of the genre and bring it into the 2000s and give it a whole new audience, that's a wonderful feat in and of itself. Uh, the record does win the Grammy of the Year award. It does go to number, number one on Billboard 
And it's one of those rare soundtracks that has taken on a life of its own. In 1998 and 1999, one of the big fads in music was Cuban music. The Buena Vista Social Club project, an album, a film, and a tour coordinated by Ry Cooter, very much a T-Bone Burnett type figure, brought a lot of 80, 90-year-old traditional Cuban musicians into the American spotlight. There was a PBS special. There was an excellent film. They played at Carnegie Hall. The record itself is extraordinary, and Cuban music is a fine thing to explore. It's it's really good. But by two thousand two thousand one. All of a sudden, it was gone. The fad was over. And the next thing that came along was Americana. And what do you know? For Oh Brother, there's a killer movie, killer soundtrack. And yeah, there was a PBS special, and they played at Carnegie Hall. So there's a bit of a pattern here. I think the thing with Americana, because it's a little more close to us culturally, and because there's no political baggage like there is between the United States and Cuba, this is a fad that actually stuck and grew and lasted. We wouldn't be talking about the Lucinda Williams record as pushing Americana forward if it wasn't also part of a larger movement like Steve Earle or Dwight Yoakam or the O Brother soundtrack, which brings together Alison Krauss, Emmy Lou Harris, John Hartford, Ralph Stanley. It's an amazing lineup, and the record touches on very common themes in country music. Way back when, when the podcast was young, we talked about chain gangs and prison songs. The movie opens up with that. There's a very stirring version of Oh Death, which is more of a chant or a mantra than an actual song in the traditional sense. Oh, death. Won't you spare me over till another year? Well, what is this that I can't see with ice cold hands taking hold of me? But then you have something so incredibly gospel and uplifting when Emmy Lou and Alison Krauss sing Go Down to the River to Pray. And who shall wear the starry crown? Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Down in the river to pray. The record, like the Lucinda Williams record, deals very well with the conflicts, contradictions, and dualities in culture in the South. The guilt, the loss, but also the joy and the search for redemption. Uh, this record does something that soundtracks rarely do. It's an album of incredibly excellent music, separate from the movie it represents, and it celebrates the music of the past 
but also carries it forward in a way that they had incredible sales. This thing sold through the roof. They have amazing critical success. You have a movie that, you know, over 20 years later, is still an incredibly popular and successful film. You take all these things together, to me, that makes it one of the all-time greats. When you celebrate the past so much that you're kicking it a few more miles into the future, you've done a very good and successful thing with your music. And to me, that is the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. There's clearly a love that I have for bluegrass, as evidenced by the fact that Bill Monroe made my list. This is a fantastic movie. It's a fantastic soundtrack. And really, it's interesting how bluegrass music seems to really owe its two big resurgences to movie soundtracks. We have the Bonnie and Clyde with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway featuring Flat and Scruggs. Oh, brother, where art thou? Featuring essentially everyone old and new. watched a lot of Alison Krauss specials here and there on things like PBS or other networks. And there was a period in time after this record came out where she was just carrying the torch for it in a big way. Uh, she's also a huge and very dedicated Ralph Stanley fan. So as you can imagine, the chance to have, you know, participated in any project featuring Ralph Stanley was a huge thing to her. So for those who aren't familiar with this one, you'll be a happier person if you familiarize yourself with it, especially since you can do so by watching the movie, which is really a top-notch movie. So do yourself a favor, go enjoy number 18, the Oh Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. And now, coming in at 17 on Jim's list, we have the Texas Troubadour, Ernest Tubb, with the Ernest Tubb Collection, featuring recordings made between 1941 and 1967. Why don't you tell us what's special to you about this one? There's a yellow rose in Texas that I'm gonna see. Nobody else could miss her, not half as much as me. She cried so when I left her, it like to broke my heart. And if I ever find her, we never more will part. Well, this might be the one on my list that is the most just straight up raw, subjective, gut reaction type thing. Uh, when we talked about the Rolling Stone list, we reality cornered us into talking about some of those people. George Strait comes to mind as great singers for their era or their albums were somehow representative of their era. Ernest Tubb 
is in that rare group where his songwriting, his records are representative of classic country in any era. I think just out of respect for the history of the music, if you're doing a list like this, you really have to consider talking about figures like Roy Acuff or Lefty Frizzell, or in my case, I went with Ernest Tubb. These are gentlemen who were huge figures in the 40s and 50s, sold a lot of records, encouraged a lot of younger musicians, furthered the genre quite a bit, helped to create the foundation and the cornerstones for this type of music to be built on. And again, mostly for emotional, subjective reasons uh, of that grouping, of that type of mentality, I went with Ernest Tubb. He is one of the pioneers of honky-tonk type music. Uh, think about those kind of funky Hank Williams arrangements where you can hear your feet shuffling through the sawdust as part of the rhythm of the music. Ernest Tubb gets his start it, much in the same way as Gene Autry. In the mid to late 1930s, you have a guy who desperately wants to be a musician. He's a decent singer, decent guitar player, completely fixated on Jimmy Rogers, who passed away in the early 1930s. Ernest Tubb, similar to Autry, gets in touch with Jimmy Rogers' widow, originally just asking to pay his respects and to ask if there's an old picture or any old memorabilia that she might be willing to share. Well, Jimmy Rogers' widow goes so far as to recognize that Ernest Tubb really has something to offer beyond being a super fan for her late husband, and she helps him get a contract with RCA. Now, Ernest Tubb is one of those people where it's not a George Jones or Roy Orbison great voice. It's more of a great voice because of the character and the emotion in it. Think maybe somebody like Tom Waits or Keith Richards or Leonard Cohen. After the war was over, I was coming home to you. I saw a rainbow at midnight. So Tubb is not going to be known right off the bat for the powerful singing voice. He kind of develops a total package type offering to the music. He's a good writer. He is a very charming and energetic and charismatic performer. He pulls people together. He forms great bands over the years that always have a focus on an incredibly hot guitar player. He's worked with Leon Rhodes, Jimmy Short, Buddy Emmons, and Buddy Charlton. A lot of the great country bands of any era are going to be defined not just by their singers, but their guitar players. As much in jazz as you have... Well, who was playing saxophone with Miles Davis? Was it Coltrane? Was it Wayne Shorter? You know, in jazz, a lot of these great bands are defined by the trumpet and the sax pairing. In a lot of these country bands, 
Certainly when we get into the Western swing era, you see that even more so, but the guitar pairings really define a lot of the great bands of this era. And Ernest Tubb was always smart enough to make that a focal point of his live bands. Wonderful recording collaboration with the producer and a guy we love to talk about in Owen Bradley, one of the great Nashville producers. Ernest has his tonsils removed out of necessity in the late 1930s, and this puts the challenges in his singing voice even more so, and he starts to focus on his songwriting, and he cranks out Walking the Floor Over You. left me and you went away you said that you'd be back in just a day you've broken your promise and you've left me here alone i don't know why you did dear but i do know that you this gone. is one of those kind of key ingredient type things in country music is somebody walking the floor wearing their heels off on the floor hello wall staring at the walls a key component of the lonely breakup country music song is a person either scraping the floor or staring at the walls. There's some physical connection of the pain, the loneliness, and the absolute awful monotony of that where it's kind of the trapped inside your house take on watching the grass grow. I'm walking the floor over you. I can't sleep a wink, that is true. I'm hoping and I'm praying as my heart breaks right in two. Walking the floor over you. Oh, pick it out, Smitty. No healthy person stares at the walls and counts whatever little pattern is on them. No person in a fun relationship thinks about how worn out a spot in the floor is getting because they just keep digging their angry, bitter, lonely heel into it. It takes a special focus to come up with that kind of stuff. And when Ernest Tubb writes Walking the Floor Over You, he's really creating one of the masterpieces of that genre. It's a song that's had a huge life ever since. This skill is so good within his family that his nephew then writes Waltz Across Texas, which is the other big signature song for Ernest. Waltz across Texas with you in my arms. Waltz across Texas with you. Like a storybook ending. I'm lost in your so career goes from the 1930s into the 1980s. So I think that would be among my objective reasons uh, for picking him, just the sheer longevity. And if you want to talk about a major contribution to country music culture, a lot of us know that for a long time on Saturday nights in Nashville, 
WSM had the Grand Ole Opry. It was a radio broadcast. It was a fantastic show. It was the stuff of legend for decades. Ernest Tubb is welcome to join the Opry in 1943, but then he kicks that whole thing up a notch because not even a mile down the road from the theater where the Opry is, is the Ernest Tubb record store. And what we now call these days the after party, after any kind of event or concert or whatever, Ernest took it upon himself to continue the Opry Saturday night early into Sunday morning by hosting the Midnight Jamboree. So once you left the Ryman Theater, you would go just down the street, maybe half a mile at most, to go into Ernest Tubb Record Store, and that's where there would be even more jamming until 2, 3, 4 in the morning. The record store, just in the last few years, was sold and closed. The property was sold. I had the good fortune of being there about seven years ago or so. This is where all my subjective emotional passion for Ernest Tubb kicks in. Uh, I was in Nashville for a few days with my daughter. She was around eight at the time. And we hit Broadway in Nashville. And one of the first things that you see is a big sign for the Ernest Tubb record store. And I thought, okay, we got to go in there and buy something. It may not be open the next time I'm here. Sure enough, that became true. So we went in, we bought a few things. And of course, the music being piped in around the record store is all Ernest Tubb. And I had, because this is what you do when you have a young daughter and you're in Nashville, you get her a pink cowboy hat and you get her a big pink paisley shirt and she ties a scarf around her neck and she declares herself queen of the cowgirls for that day. And sure enough, that's what happened. Uh, We're hearing waltz across Texas and we're kind of bopping around the record store and then up and down Broadway and into the Johnny Cash Museum and had some incredibly good brisket, bought a few jars of barbecue sauce to bring home that day with the records from the Ernest Tubb shop. And I don't know if it was just circumstance or if all the merchants along Broadway had it in their head, but if it's a weekday afternoon and you don't have that typical raunchy weekend crowd at nights, pretty much everywhere we went, there was Ernest Tubb coming through whatever speakers were either in that restaurant or in that shop. We bought shirts, we bought cowboy hats, we went to eat, again, the brisket. And pretty much it was Ernest Tubb everywhere. And I can barely count to three, much less dance. But that day, I could actually waltz. And sure enough, as I'm researching stuff for this episode of the podcast, in a lot of beer hall dance lessons for waltzing, certainly in Texas and throughout the South, the textbook example song they use is Ernest Tubb, Waltz Across Texas. So that's why he's on my list. Um, He did a tremendous amount for the community just by hosting that after party from the Opry And again, the music has continued to this day, where if you're a tourist in Nashville from the northern part of the country, you're going to be driving home thinking about waltz across Texas in your head for five or six hours. And with your hand in mine, dear, I could dance on and on, and I could waltz across Texas with you. Walls 
walks across Texas with you and my Because it's just that pure classic country. Don't really find that there's anything not to love about Ernest Tubb. You know, one of the important things about the E.T. record shop, it wasn't just designed to service the needs of the Nashville country music community. They did a booming mail order business. So if you lived in a part of the country where it was difficult to find the country music albums that you loved, you could get them by ordering them from the Ernest Tubb record shop and they would mail them right to your house. Uh, that is a big part of the reason why Jimmy Rogers recordings kept selling for so long after he had died. He had been dead for quite some time, but Ernest Tubbs love for Jimmy Rogers, which Jim touched on when he talked about Ernest and his wife uh, visiting Carrie Rogers, Jimmy's widow, you know, that shined through. And so it helped continue a previous generation of music while still continuing to spread the current generation at the time to people who wouldn't have otherwise been able to necessarily uh, get their hands on too many things. It's easy to forget about this kind of stuff in the world of, I want it, I go on Amazon, there it is, I purchased it, it's here in a couple of days, no matter where I live. Uh, it doesn't matter if you live in a major city or in an incredibly rural area. It just it, These days, there is no barrier to entry to acquire whatever you like, but at the time, it was places like the E.T. record shop that really made the difference. All right. Now we're going to land at the number 16 spot on Jim's list with what I would say is probably one of the greatest combination country music tribute slash vanity projects of all time. It's an amazing album. It really ties a lot of this stuff together across generations so at number 16 the nitty-gritty dirt band with will the circle be unbroken from 1972 jim for those who aren't familiar with this one why don't you tell them about it i think even more so than the old brothers soundtrack this record might be the ultimate bridge between past present and future of country classic country and americana and, and of course within that you're going to have some folk music and some bluegrass music this is an extraordinary testament to the legends that do chip in and, and contribute in a mighty way on this record but it's also a huge statement to the ambition, the boldness, and the sheer huge sense of nerve by these guys who call themselves the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Now, um, much like in New York in the early 60s, you have a folk music revival with uh, people like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez. On the West Coast in California, you have a bluegrass and a folk revival happening in the early sixties too. The problem in California, why that doesn't grow and endure as much of the folk scene in New York is you have a lot of the California bands around 1964 
all of a sudden something extreme happens. The Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan. A few months later in 1964, the film A Hard Day's Night comes out. If you read interviews with people like Jerry Garcia and in the Jefferson Airplane, Grace Slick and her partners, Paul Cantor, Jack Cassidy, and Norma Kaukinen, and then folks like Roger McGuinn, who would start The Birds, David Crosby, who would join with him. These are all people that were pretty hardcore folk and blues musicians between 1960 and 1964. And again, when you read interviews with them, Somebody's like, well, you guys were a bluegrass band, you know, in the case of the early Grateful Dead days. Uh, what happened? And Garcia and, again, these other musicians were like, well, I went to the theaters and I saw Hard Day's Night. And then shortly after that, marijuana showed up. And I just wanted electric guitar so bad, I just couldn't stand it. So that's a lot of the switch away from the folk and the country stuff in the California crowd. But you get some people that are just so dang stubborn, they're not going to give up what they're doing. And in California, in the bluegrass scene, that's John McEwen and Jeff Hanna. And they start a group called the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band around the same time as the rock and roll stuff is happening in the early mid-60s. And I have no idea what their personal take on going to see A Hard Day's Night was, but for whatever reason, they stuck with their acoustic instruments and with their folk and country and bluegrass traditions. And boy, are we glad they did. Come and listen to my story, if you will, I'm going to tell about a gang of fellers from down at Nashville. First I'll start with old Red Foley doing the Chattanooga shoe. We can't forget Hank Williams with them good old Hussick blues. formed in 1966 in California, and in 1969 they catch a break by contributing music to one of the oddest westerns of all time, a film called Paint Your Wagon. Uh, what the hell is going on in my town? We're just painting this wagon. You got a problem with that? As a matter of fact, I do. You missed a spot. Well, grab a brush and join in. And then in 1971, these guys, again, Jeff Hanna and John McEwen, they have the nerve to go and pursue wanting to work with some of their heroes. The very simplistic version is like this. These two hippie guys show up in Nashville. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oh, it's John McEwen and Jeff Hanna. We're hippie bluegrass musicians from California. We're here to see Earl Scruggs, Doc Watson, Roy Acuff. Vassar Clemens. Oh, and by the way, if Mabel Carter can come out to play too, that would be cool. basically responded to the knock-knock with, uh, who the hell are you guys? And why the hell should we come out to play with you? 
we are aging legends. We are well-established. We are, in Maybell's case, mostly retired. You know, why should we come hang out with hippies just because you're willing to come from California to Nashville? Well, the story goes, these legends show up and they say, well, we'll listen to you guys play. And these guys play. And you know what? Scruggs, Doc Watson, Roy Acuff, Faster Clemens, Maybell herself are all over this record. This is very much a celebration and a victory lap for these folks in the early 70s because they're not going to be around too much longer. And again, for the most part, semi-retired. The recording sessions for this album also bring together for the very first time Doc Watson, incredible traditional bluegrass folk guitarist, and one of the other great legends of country guitar, Merle Travis. I named my son uh, for you and Eddie Arnold. That's what I heard. I appreciate that. Well, I figure that uh, if uh, a little of that uh, good guitar picking might rub off on him. <laughs> Look who's talking. Hey, that guitar, by the way, rings like a bell. It's a pretty good old box, and Mr. Gallagher made this thing. Doc Watson actually names his son Merle after Merle Travis. The two men had never met, despite their long, brilliant careers, until these freaky guys from California get them together a recording studio in Tennessee in late 1971. This winds up being a triple album. Again, early 70s, I think folks with a more negative point of view would say, well, that's just the excess and the vanity of this point in time. But, you know, the other 1971, 72 era triple album is George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. I'm not going to be the one to raise my hand and argue with either one of these records being triples. So when I say this is a bridge album between eras, I mean, it almost physically is too. You unfold the damn thing and it's triple album set. And back in those days, that was a big fold out thing. Lots of cardboard, lots of vinyl. You could separate the seeds, you could roll the joints, and you'd even have room for a cup of tea and a sandwich. It's You're unfolding a triple album for God's sakes. Uh, but it's absolutely worth it. And again, the people that they bring together, and certainly, you know, if you're recovering from having been part of Paint Your Wagon a few years before, this is a brilliant recovery. Uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band were very supportive, very celebrated, and very supported by a California institution that opened in 1958 called McCabe's Guitar Store. This is a guitar store that was really famous as a meetup spot for lots of young musicians. They also hosted live jams in their back room. And if you want to get a rough idea of how influential McCabe's Guitar Store is, again, they opened in 1958 in California. Over the years, they host live performances by, and I'm going to read this list, and then I'm going to give you a second to catch your breath and let the room stop spinning. But over the years, they give support and live performance space to Chet Atkins, Lucinda Williams, Doc Watson, Del McCurry, John Lee Hooker, R.E.M., Mike Nesmith, John Cale, Robin Hitchcock, and Bob Mould. That is variety up the wazoo, as they say, 
the folks that open the store and lend that kind of support to it's an impressive list of musicians. Well, we all owe these guys a pint for opening their guitar store. Across this record, you're going to find Roy Acuff coming out of semi-retirement and providing great vocals and encouragement along this record. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like an angel in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light. No more darkness, no more This is a record that brings Vassar Clemens to the hippie audience, and he becomes a big part of modern bluegrass. And it's maybe seems weird to keep hearing about this connection between the big rock bands from California in the sixties and the country and folk scene. But keep in mind that those bands grew up mostly wanting to be folk musicians. And if it wasn't for the Beatles and a little marijuana showing up in 1964, who knows what path these folks would have been on. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. And the old joke that the Grateful Dead is just country music for people who like to smoke weed, that's pretty dead-on factual correct. And their respect over the years shown to this type of music, their love for Marty Robbins and Johnny Cash, their love for bluegrass that you certainly hear in the guitar playing of Jerry Garcia, who... And a lot of those little fills and triplets are just banjo lines. That's the instrument the guy got started on. Make good money, five dollars a day. Made any more, I might move away. You also have Maybell to get back to this record and the recording sessions for it. Maybell shows up and records Keep on the Sunny Side. On the old record, I started it like this. There's a dark and a troubled side of life. There's a bright and a sunny side to the sunny side we also may view. She records Thinking Tonight of My Blue Eyes. Oh, I'm thinking tonight of my blue eyes Who is sailing far over the sea Oh, I'm thinking tonight of him only And I wonder if he ever thinks of me She records Wildwood Flower. Will the circle be unbroken? This is such a celebration of her. And it's one of the rare, more modern looks at just the power of the woman's guitar playing and of her singing and of her presence. Oh, he taught me to love him and promise to love and to cherish me over all others. Me, no warning, no words 
of this record serves as a documentary because in between the tunes, you get snippets of conversation, outtakes, things we would now call, you know, bonus tracks. So you get Doc Watson and, and Merle Travis meeting and shaking hands, and you get that dialogue from their first meeting as part of the record. You get Maybell talking about sitting around the living room playing these songs, you know, 30, 40 years before these recording sessions. It's an extraordinary thing. Uh, the other thing I would add about McEwen from uh, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, he was Steve Martin's banjo instructor back in California in the 60s and early 70s. We know Steve Martin from his great comedy career. He then used those guys as the backing band for his novelty record of the late 70s, King Tut. Now when I The King Tut exhibit was a big deal in American museums in the late 70s. Steve Martin capitalized by writing a hilarious song about it. And he took the nitty gritty guys as his backing band. And for that record, nicknamed them the Toot Uncommons. And it's a hilarious record. You never know it was a classic bluegrass band. So these guys can tie everything together from Doc Watson, Maybell Carter, Merle Travis, Roy Acuff, all the way to Steve Martin being a goofball in the late 70s. That is an enormous reach and an enormous sense of skill and gratitude for the things you're trying to tie together. I went back home, Lord. My home was lonesome. Miss my mother, she was gone. All my brothers, sisters crying. What a home so sad and lone. It's definitely worth all three albums worth of material. I wouldn't leave anything off of this. You could probably go through the outtakes and add a fourth record, no problem. It is one of the biggest musical bridges that I have ever encountered in my life. It's the nitty gritty dirt band. And they're really proving that the circle is never broken. And they have the old time legends backing them up to prove it. It's just extraordinary. Take a rainy day, make a pot of tea, sit down with this whole thing. You won't regret it. But when you take something like, will the circle be unbroken or all things must pass or the no nukes album or Woodstock or any of these multiple LP collections, when everything is quality on them, which it certainly is here. Absolutely. I agree. I would not have wanted them to cut this one down just for length reasons. They did exactly what they should have. And it came out almost perfect. For those who have seen the Ken Burns documentary, you're probably familiar with this particular portion of the story. But it is fascinating to watch some of these sessions take place. It's nice hearing the surviving uh, folks from those sessions give interviews at various points in time from 
the sessions themselves up to when Ken Burns was recording his documentary, you're going to learn a lot about classic bluegrass and Americana music if you listen to this album and if you watch interviews given by these folks. So this is a great pick. It deserves to be on the list. And that's going to take us to number 15 on Jim's list, John Prine with his self-titled first album from 1971. Uh, Unfortunately, we lost John during the early stages of the pandemic. And that was a huge blow to American music. So here to explain to us what John Prine means to him and why he included this album on his list, Jim. Thanks, Chris. Uh, appreciate the introduction. And you're right. Sadly, John Prine, uh, we lost him in the first few months of 2020 during the crazy early days of the COVID pandemic. It's It was a huge loss, a, a big tragedy, uh, just a fantastic human being all around. This is another one that is very subjective for me, uh, for a few reasons, if you grow up in Chicago and if you are a university student in the mid-80s when John Prine is still very active, very popular, very influential, and if you're going around the pubs in Chicago, especially near any of the college areas, I was near DePaul, that host open mic nights, you cannot escape the reach, the long reach of John Prine. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. If you're showing up to an open mic night, in a Chicago pub, especially around the North side in the seventies or in the eighties. And you can't get away from John Prine. In 1987, I was in line at open mic night at the Earl of Old Town, which had actually relocated to Lincoln park. It was just a couple blocks from the DePaul campus. And I had been playing music with one of my college buddies, this guy, Steve, we, played guitar for maybe about 10 years together. You go in for open mic, you write down your name on the list, you sit there, you wait your turn, you respectfully support the other musicians unless they're doing some really god-awful version of Freebird for the 10th time. Then you get up and go to the bathroom. But we're sitting there, we're waiting our turn. It's Sunday night, drinking our beer, eating our french fries. And this really scruffy little guy comes walking in with this big ragged trench coat, a guitar case. And all of a sudden the bartender comes to us and he's like, well, you're going to wait a couple turns further down the list. This guy just walked in and we're going to let him go right away. And Steve and I were like, wait, what, what the hell? We've been sitting here all damn night. Anyway, we got wait more. Okay. Um, the guy takes his hat off, takes his coat off, starts pulling the guitar out of the case, turns around, finally get a good look at him. Oh, holy shit, it's John Prine. So at that point, we're sitting there trying to hope we remember the chords, too. I think we played second that emotion 
and the Beatles song, I've just seen a face that night. And it just becomes sheer terror. It's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, please don't let us have to go after him. So Prine does four or five songs. It's two or three is the typical limit of these things. And of course, the place is filled with people who know his history and his tradition and his place among royalty and Chicago music. And damn, bartender comes up to us. He's like, you guys better get ready next. Oh, God. So we went up there. I barely remember what happened. It probably wasn't very good. But for the rest of my life, I've been able to walk around saying, I got to follow John Prine at an open mic night. And I could have walked up there and just spontaneously combusted, and I wouldn't have cared. But it was intimidating. But it was like having the Pope appear before you and grant you a wish. I mean, it was just such an extraordinary thing. So let's take this back to 1971, Prine's first album. He had been an army mechanic in Europe during part of the Vietnam era. He comes back to his hometown of Chicago, and he's in the suburb of Maywood. It's one of the collar suburbs right on the southwest border of the city. Small town, working class, and he becomes a mailman. To this day, around Chicago radio and Chicago music fans, if somebody says the Maywood mailman, you know you're only talking about John Prine. He falls into the big folk scene in Chicago this time with guys like Jim Post and Steve Goodman, who famously wrote the train song City of New Orleans. And one night, while Prine is playing in one of these local pubs around Chicago, a guy named Chris Christofferson walks in and boom, hears him. And very much like me at that night at the Earl of Old Town is like, wow, this guy's really good. And Christofferson helps him get a record deal with Atlantic. So this first record comes out. When the record comes out, Bob Dylan reviews it by saying, John Prine is a songwriter that gives you a Midwest mind trip to the nth degree. And Dylan, an exceptional songwriter from Minnesota, probably knows what he's talking about when he talks about wacky mind trips of the Midwest. The record contains, well, all of them are great classic songs. The big one on here and I think this record deserves the reverence and the respect because this record contains the John Prine composition, Angel from Montgomery. I am an old woman named after my mother. My old man is another child that's grown old. Bonnie Raitt has made that song famous as her own for many years. But if you're the guy that wrote that song, you can write that song. You can sit back, have a drink and relax because you just did a million times more good for music than a lot of other people did with 10 albums. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to To believe in this living is just a hard way to go It's an incredible song. The other 
big song on here is Hello in There, which is a respectful, reverent look at the loneliness of old people who miss their lives, who miss their children, who have grown and moved away, who miss the guy that they used to work with down at the factory. They miss their lives. And in this song, John Prine actually bothers to knock on their window and take a peek in and say, hey, you know, you've lived this long. You've probably got an amazing story to tell. I'll listen. You know that old trees just grow stronger And old rivers grow wilder every day Old people just grow lonesome Waiting for someone to say Hello in there. Just extraordinary. Uh, the other big one on here and was very controversial at the time is a song called Sam Stone about a veteran of an unnamed war, most likely Vietnam, given that this record is from 1971. And Prine himself had done military service during that era. Sam Stone is like many, the veteran who comes home and is not celebrated, is not cheered for, is not given a parade. And everything he experienced while in the military takes control and takes over him. He becomes a drug addict. The song is bleak to the point where the man's children are wondering, what are the holes in daddy's arms? And the time that he served shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knee but the morphine eased the pain and the grass grew around his brain and gave him all the confidence he lacked it's it's a rough ride and if it doesn't give you pause to think of how we treat the people in our military once they're done with all of the the awful violent stuff that we glorify and romanticize well maybe we should glorify and romanticize those folks for making it back home and show some compassion in that regard because they have been through something that most of us will never know uh, from this point on, Prine goes to have an extraordinary career. He does eventually leave the Chicago area and settle in Nashville. Like Emmy Lou Harris, he winds up mentoring younger musicians as they come up, most notably a singer named Iris Demet that he works with through the early part of her career. Prine never, ever stops kicking out great music up until the time that he dies. Uh, in one of the last records he makes before his passing, he comes up with a wonderful song of when he gets to heaven and what he hopes is there. And I know Chris and I appreciate this part of the lyric. He really hopes he can still get a pint of Smittix when he gets up to heaven. And it, it's the little things that count, folks. John Prine's debut from 1971. It is an extraordinary study of the little things that make up life. It has the classic all-time great song, Angel from Montgomery. Uh, and just for laughs, it also has a wonderful song called Illegal Smile. Bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down 
and one and it was 12 o'clock before I realized I was having no fun ah, but fortunately I have the key to escape reality and you may see me tonight with an illegal smile it don't cost very much but it lasted Brian has often been asked well this has got to be about smoking weed right and he says well when I was a little kid and I went to school and you'd have to go to church you'd never want to sit next to your friend in church because you knew you were just going to bust out laughing and if the nuns caught you it was death and I think that's as much of a good illegal smile as the smoking weed one these are all the amazing things that John Prine gives us with his songwriting and his storytelling. It is one of the great debuts in any type of music. Uh, please go out and listen to this. The Maywood Mailman, unfortunately the late, but always the great John Prine. I would like to direct listeners to the Hayrides Facebook page. There is a fantastic version of the song Angel from Montgomery, which was sung as a duet between uh, Bob Weir and Amy Lou Harris, who we've talked about constantly throughout this uh, podcast. And it's from early March of 2020, right before everything closed down due to the pandemic just around a month before John Prine passed away. Fantastic version. Go find it on our Facebook page. Find it on YouTube. Find it wherever you need to find it. It is really fun to listen to. And now, here at number 14 on Jim's list, an artist we've talked about on the Hayride before. Uh, we talked about him in the Rolling Stone episode, and we talked about him in my episode when Rolling Stone and I both chose the same album. Here's Jim with a different, but certainly no less worthy pick, uh, Waylon Jennings, Honky Tonk Heroes from 1973. Jim, tell us why ladies love outlaws. And yes, I know that's a reference to a completely different album. Uh, Waylon is just pure, badass, country, rockabilly outlaw all the way around. Uh, and aside from that amazing singing voice, the guy's a really good guitar player, too. He has this unique style on, again, the Fender Telecaster, but he plays with an effect called a phaser that gives it this kind of weird, sometimes almost underwater type tone to it. It's real unique. To this day, it's really unique. Uh, he actually helped to influence Chet Atkins as... Atkins was finishing his time with Gretsch guitars, designing and helping to market guitars. The very last Chet Atkins model for Gretsch has a phaser built into the guitar. This is in the late 70s. Waylon is firmly established in his career at this point, and he helps to create a, an effect in a guitar tone that's so unique and so excellent that Chet winds up taking it as an idea to include in electronics as he's designing guitars with the Gretsch folks in the late 70s. So Waylon himself, to get back to the badass rockabilly legend type thing, he gets his start playing bass in the crickets with Buddy Holly. Famously, Waylon Jennings is one of the people that had a chance to get on the airplane that night in February. 
and he chose not to stayed on the bus we all know what happened to buddy holly and richie valens and the big bopper the people that were on that airplane so Waylon had to live with that and for a long time he was not shy about revealing that it was a difficult thing to live with it drove a lot of alcohol use a lot of depression a lot of just really unhealthy living and habits for the man i don't think i'm speculating here as a member of his audience but it's hard to say that you ever noticed the man truly physically recover from that part of his life. He's only 64 years old in 2002 when he passes away from issues related to diabetes. And he'd already had a foot amputated at that point. Um, it's a hard life. It's a real brilliant life that benefits the rest of us as music lovers Honky Talk Heroes from 1973 is a real key turning point, not just for Waylon, but for country music in the 70s. And this is going to wind up sucking Willie Nelson into this phenomenon as well. Uh, this is the first album that Waylon Jennings makes after his new contract with RCA. Chris has often discussed that same phenomenon with Willie Nelson in the early 70s, where he got his own creative control contract that was able to allow him to break away a bit from the traditional record business way of doing things. So Waylon had threatened to leave RCA and they were not going to let him go. So they gave in, he got full creative control and an incredibly bold, rash and ballsy move. One of the first things he does is to take Chet Atkins off the album project as producer. They would remain friendly and certainly professional friends for years to come. But if you're Waylon Jennings, who's popular and selling well at this point, but he's not the superstar we know yet. And one of the first things you do with your new contract is to ask Chet Atkins to step out of the studio. Again, bold, brash. Jennings totally backs it up on this record uh, the issues with chet atkins were that waylon jennings wanted to use a relatively unknown songwriter named billy joe shaver at this point he didn't have a lot of experience chet didn't know him very well and didn't want to go with a new person writing all the songs for the album the other issue is that jennings wanted to use his live band from his tours and live shows as his band in the studio to me that makes perfect sense you know, unless you're trying to deliberately do a Sgt. Pepper or a Pet Sounds type thing, if you're doing a straight rock, rockabilly, or in this case, a straight honky-tonk album with a little rockabilly edge to it, you want a band that is used to playing together. You want a guitar player who knows how to complement the singer. You want a bass player and a drummer who are so in a pocket together that you can't tell the difference between who's where with the beat. It's just one solid unit. And that's what a good live touring band is. So Jennings wanted a relatively unknown songwriter in Billy Joe Shaver. He wanted his live band to be the studio band. Chet didn't agree with that. 
Chet had plenty of other quality work to do. He went off to do that. Waylon does this record his way. Um, he has some really nice backup here from Ralph Mooney on steel guitar. Billy Joe Shaver has a hand in writing, I think, all but one of the songs on the record. It's a wonderful combination of rockabilly and traditional honky-tonk type styles. And Waylon Jennings, you know, as I've mentioned, some of the hard living aspects of his life, in addition to the health issues and the substance issues, the man married four different wives, including his guitar hero, Dwayne Eddy's ex-wife. The album produces a number eight charting hit single with You Asked Me To. Let the world call me a fool But if things are right with me and you That's all that matters and I'll do which it's a wonderful song and Waylon pulls it off brilliantly but boy you don't want to be the guy in this song he will give up all his friends if the woman asks him to he will give up the woman if she asks him to he will give up everything if she asks him to it's not a healthy situation but Waylon is definitely committed, and boy, has he made his mind up. The other really great song on here is also a sad love ballad. It's a song called We Had It All. Over the years, this was a big part of Waylon's live shows. You were the best thing in my life that I recall. You and me. amazingly powerful ballad lots of regret that whole classic country element of love lost is very powerful in this song uh dolly parton has a hit with this in the mid 80s and it never made it to the rolling stones some girls record but there's a wonderful demo of keith richards showing his deep love for country music he has often said, George Jones, Hank Williams, Waylon, you know, if he wasn't in the Stones, he'd be knocking down the door to play with any of those people. And I'll never stop believing in your smile. Even though it didn't stay, it was all worthwhile. You're the best thing in my life I can recall You and me, we had it all So we get two real sad, regret-filled ballad-type songs. We get, though, something unique in this with Waylon Jennings. It's, it's not woe is me, poor me, cry me a river. It's these are these awful sad things that have happened to me. This is the kind of low space that I'm stuck in. It, it, I only blame myself. It's my own damn fault. There's none of that 
self-pity or victim or blaming everybody else type thing. He's really clear about how miserable he is. He's really clear about the level of loss he's feeling. He's really clear about it starts and ends with his own poor choices. And for a guy who had the hard living that he had and the number of wives that he had, it's not a matter of life imitates art. It's a matter of something that almost all English teachers say to students every day, write what you know, create what you know. And one of the things we've been noticing throughout all of the music we discuss on this program is that sort of circle of art, music, pain, misery, and how those themes kind of repeat over and over again. Regret or longing for lost love is a common thing in a lot of types of music, in a lot of storytelling, in a lot of filmmaking, even in painting. Uh, what we lose is very often the thing that defines us the most. And with Honky Talk Heroes, Waylon Jennings acknowledges those things with such musical quality and such great songwriting from Billy Joe Shaver, great pedal steel accents by Ralph Mooney. Uh, the album wound up being a number 14 on the charts as an album, had incredible reviews. He's Waylon Jennings, folks. This is the start of the outlaw country movement in the 70s, and it's an incredible start. Waylon Jennings, Honky Talk Heroes. One of the things that I enjoy about this album quite a bit is the fact that Billy Joe Shaver did write or co-write every song with the exception of one. I am a fan of Billy Joe Shaver through my love for the music of Jerry Jeff Walker, because one of my Jerry, one of my favorite Jerry Jeff Walker songs is old five and dimers like me, which Waylon does have a version of on this album. Good luck and fast bucks are too far and too few between. Cadillac buyers and old five and dimers like the song I always enjoyed. When I was a kid and I was aware of the fact that Waylon Jennings also had a version of this song, I really enjoyed it. And it's what got me listening to this record. As Jim mentioned, uh, the song You Asked Me To uh, peaked at number eight. We had it all peaked at number 28. So there's no real hit aspect, but this is a very formative album and a very important album. This is an album from the beginning of what's going to become known as Outlaw Country. You listen to this album and you're listening to the beginning of what's going to become a movement. Uh, thanks, Chris, for chiming in on the Waylon Jennings discussion. You know, I made a point to mention the man's difficulties and bad habits in his life. One of the things I learned about Waylon Jennings while researching this episode is something that I think is just as extraordinary as any of the music that he made in his life. Uh, my bias towards this is I spent most of my professional life in education. Now, remember, Waylon Jennings only lives to be 64 years old. 
when he is 60 years old, he's already an established musical legend, big celebrity, obviously very wealthy. He wants to fix something in his personal life, and he wants to prove a point to his grandchild. He goes back and gets his high school equivalency, his GED certificate, just to make the point to his grandchild. Don't make the mistakes I did. You know, your family is financially secure. People know the Jennings name at this point. Make sure you stay in school. And uh, to go back into a GED program when you're a world-famous musician and you're 60 years old, like the Chet Atkins thing back in the 70s, that takes a lot of nerve, a lot of balls, a lot of class. I would offer huge respect to Waylon Jennings for that as much as for any of his music. And uh, folks, just a tip from Chris and Jim, your friends at the Six String Hayride, stay in school, kids. And now stepping up to lucky number 13 on Jim's list, we have Buck Owens with 21 number one hits. Uh, again, we have a little bit of an anthology here. This is a two-disc collection of hits that Buck recorded between 1963 and 1988. Jim, why did Buck make your list? I have been hearing Buck Owens' music since I was a little kid, in large part uh, because between 1966 and 1972, he had his own TV show, and my dad was a huge fan of this kind of music. And then from 1969 until 1986, he's co-hosting Hee Haw with Roy Clark. And through the 70s, which was my being a little kid and being around a television a lot time, you could not escape the man. Uh, Captain Sparkle, Buck Owens, and the Buckaroos. I mean, seriously, Google a picture of these guys, and the outfits are just dazzling and fantastic. Sometimes I look at that and I think, you know, it doesn't matter if they sing a note. The outfits are just so damn cool. They could just walk around Bakersfield like that and be celebrities. And they were. There's a lot of good reason for that. Uh, Buck Owens is originally from Texas. His name is Alvis Owens Jr. And when he was a little kid, he marched into the kitchen and told his parents, my name is Buck. And his parents went along with that. Obviously, that's how we all know the man over the years. The donkey in the family that was out in the barn was named Buck. So young Alvis Jr., understandably looking for options, uh, goes to the family donkey and, okay, I'll, you're Buck, I'll be Buck. This is a gag that influences a filmmaker who is also a huge Buck Owens fan, uh, two guys actually by the name of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, who when creating the Indiana Jones character you finally find out from Indiana Jones's dad that Indiana is Henry Jr. and the family dog is Indiana. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This, this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones Jr. Like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. So the wisdom of Buck Owens is a big influence on two of my favorite filmmakers. Owens gets his start in 1959 as his first record. He records through the 1980s. 
He's a self-taught musician on guitar, mandolin, trumpet, and drums. In the 1940s, he's a truck driver, and he winds up going through Bakersfield, California. This is an area that he becomes very fond of. It has a lot of appeal and emotional pull to him. He winds up settling there. He stays there for the rest of his life. He creates a type of music known as the Bakersfield sound. Later on in the 1980s, the sort of Buck disciple who takes up this mantle and continues this tradition is Dwight Yoakam. Now his guitar is Cadillac, hillbilly music, lonely, lonely streets that I call home. Yeah, my guitar is Cadillac, hillbilly music. In his own right. So Buck does something very clever early in his career as he's getting into that early and then mid-60s peak. This is something he has in common with the great Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry often said, look, I know that for the most part, people listen to my music in their cars on the radio. So I'm mostly going to write songs about young people being in their cars or wanting to buy a car or wanting to buy a better car. He knew instinctively you know as a songwriter and as a businessman nice combination when you can get it right that that's a way to really get close to your audience and have the audience feel like they know you you write about what they do and what they love if you do it well you get a connection that it's hard to break with an audience buck owens kind of has the other side of the coin on that chuck berry way of thinking Buck Owens knows that most people are listening to his music in a car on a radio. So he doesn't write a lot of songs about being in a car, having a car like Chuck does, but he records and mixes the songs suited for the type of tiny AM radio speaker you would find in a car in the early 1960s. It's not stereo. It's not FM. You're not getting really good bass response. Nobody has an extra speaker cabinet in the trunk of the car. You've got a little AM radio speaker that's maybe about the size that a cell phone is now. So when you listen to a Buck Owens record on a nice home system, you might be thinking, I'm not hearing a lot of bass in this. I'm hearing what sounds like you know, a mountain of Telecasters and some real serious twang. And yes, because that is what Buck intended for you to hear. Again, he knew car radio, tiny speaker, that's where my audience is. That's when they're listening to my music on the radio. That's how I'm going to put it together. It's not just great musical sense. It's great business sense, too. Because as Chris mentioned, we're talking about an artist here a musician who has a huge wave of hit singles, 21 of them. And again, he's recording from 1959 into the early 80s. He's different from a lot of his peers and the other country music going on east of him in Tennessee and Nashville specifically. He's out in Bakersfield on his own. And he doesn't get into a lot of drinking and sadness and prison and regret and self-reflection and the difficult search for redemption. Most of his songs are fun, catchy, three-minute stories. 
again, similar to Chuck Berry, and they're fairly lighthearted. They have a good sense of humor about them. They have a character that you can either appreciate and see there's a little bit of self-deprecating humor going on, or it's just, again, lighthearted. You have a song like Tiger by the Tail, where he's basically, hey, I'm a low-key guy. I want to marry a woman, stay around the house, barbecue. And he falls in love with a woman who he winds up describing as a tiger. I've got a tiger by the tail, it's plain to see. I won't be much when you get through with me. While I'm a losing weight and a turning mighty pale. Looks like I've got a tiger by the tail. It's hilarious. It's catchy. Musically, it's really good. The guitar is excellent. You can say the same about Act Naturally, which also wound up being covered by the Beatles. And then when he does get into something that's even remotely a sad love song, he doesn't dwell on the sadness of it. He doesn't get into the heartbreak of it. It's literally called Love is Gonna Live Here Again. Oh, the sun's gonna shine in my life once more. Love's gonna live here again. Things are gonna be the way they were before. Love's gonna live here again. So it's more let's kiss and make up. It's more forward thinking. This is not music with a tear in your beer. This is a music with some hard driving Telecaster twang behind it. And that is courtesy of Buck's collaborator and partner, the brilliant Don Rich. From 1959 through to his death in 1974, Don Rich is the king of the Telecaster in the Bakersfield sound. just a fantastic musician when he passes in 1974 it's an accidental death buck owens never fully recovers he's kind of emotionally gutted he has acknowledged several times in interviews that he really felt like he never truly got going again musically after don rich passed away in the late 80s when he starts to be a mentor to dwight yoakam that helps him a little bit. Trying to find me something better Here on the streets of Bakersfield Hey, you don't know me, but you don't like me Say you careless how I feel But how many of you that sitting just me Ever walk the streets of Bakersfield Buck Owens also does something very clever in the later part of his career that is a lesson learned from the great Gene Autry, the singing cowboy. After Autry stopped selling records and making movies, he took a lot of his money and invested it in buying radio stations. That's a good idea as a retired musician because, one, you're staying in the business. Two, you're buying something that almost everybody uses. 
especially in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And you're also finding a way to continue to have your older music reach an audience because you own the radio station. So Buck Owens also gets into this business, makes a ton of money, buys back a lot of his unsold albums from the earlier times in his career. And then at a bar that he owns and operates in Bakersfield, California, he's selling his old product that he's already been paid for as a result of his recording contract from that era. This is shrewd business, folks. It's not just the sparkle of the outfits. There's something keen going on in the man's mind as well. So Buck continues to sell his old records and do live performances and spend time with his fans at the bar that he runs in Bakersfield, California. And he does all this until he's 76 years old in the year 2006. He plays a show, has a meal, goes home, falls asleep. Buck Owens dies. A lot of musicians are fond of saying, I'm going to play, you know, until they drag my dead body off the stage. He literally pulled that off, played a gig at a bar he owned and operated, went to his own home, laid down, and that's it. It's a fantastic career. It's a fantastic body of work. To be such a popular radio-friendly type act and to still have great musical quality and integrity, that's kind of a rare thing. In the 60s, in the era of hit singles, the music-loving public was really lucky to have a lot of that. You had the Motown thing going on. You have what Buck's doing with the Bakersfield sound. You have all those great Chuck Berry singles. It was a wonderful time to get one of those little records with the giant hole in the middle of it, put it down on your turntable, and for three minutes, you were in heaven. And Buck Owens, again, 21 number one hits. That's a lot of heaven. His legacy continues through the music of Dwight Yoakam and through a celebrated model of the Telecaster that Fender Guitars issued in his honor called the Buckocaster. And if you get a guitar named after you, that's cool. So, yeah, Buck Owens, number 13, 21 number one hits. Fantastic stuff. Another fun fact, Jim had mentioned that there was a Telecaster model guitar named after Buck. There's also the famous red, white, and blue Buck Owens signature acoustic guitar. And we talked about this at the opening of this episode when we talked about how some music transcends all genres. Well, if you go back and you watch the Nirvana Live Unplugged in New York City uh, concert from 1994, there's Pat Smear who was a member of one of the early original punk bands, uh, The Germs, who is at this point sitting in with Nirvana to add a little bit of tone to their guitar work since it's such a small band normally. And what kind of guitar is Pat Smear playing? A Buck Owens signature acoustic guitar. So this is a man whose music just transcends the, the entire world, top to bottom. It doesn't matter what kind of music you like or listen to you will find people who perform the music in that genre who will cite Buck Owens as an influence. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, uh, Buck Owens is an innovator in music and in music business. 
us folks in the rock and roll crowd, uh, a good live album is something we just kind of assume and take for granted at that point. You know, you have the Allman Brothers live album, you have the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones, Peter Frampton with great live albums. Buck Owens is really the pioneer in this. In 1966, it's live at Carnegie Hall. And we've talked about this record before. Uh, taking recording equipment in the mid-1960s around to set up in theaters and concert halls for live performance is a relatively new thing. It's a very difficult thing at the time. But in his wisdom, because the 1966 Carnegie Hall record sells very well, in 1967, Buck Owens does a tour of Japan. Guess what, folks? There's a live album. It's really good. In 1968, see a trend here, Buck Owens gets invited to Washington to play for Lyndon Johnson. There's a live album of that. I think if Buck and the band had gone out for dinner after that, there'd probably be a live album from that too. But again, something we take as normal and regular in the rock and roll era something very much pioneered by a country artist in the mid-1960s, the great Buck Owens. Now at number 12, an album we talked about last time on my list. Jim also chose to put Tammy and George Golden Ring, uh, their duet album from 1976, on his list. Jim, tell us why and Maybe give us a little backstory about what was going on at this point with the two artists who make this record. Well, they're two extraordinary singers. We have often mentioned that, you know, to our ears and our hearts, George Jones is the finest voice in country music. The only other singer I have ever dared to compare him to is Roy Orbison. I, I don't think you should compare either one of those men to other singers without really thinking about what you're going to say before you say it. It's They're just that unique. Golden Ring, similar to Chris's thoughts about this, you want to have a George Jones record on your list because of the voice. His nickname at the time was The Possum because of the beauty of the voice and the Mel Torme bit, I've decided to call him the Velvet Possum. We'll see if that sticks or not. Uh, and Tammy Wynette is one of the biggest female stars coming through the mid-60s and into the 70s. It's a fantastic pairing. So if you're limited in the size of your list, you go with what the two of them were truly best at and that's when they work together because for a lot of the records they were together they were in love it was volatile and crazy but they just work so damn well together that they broke up and went through a horrible divorce right before golden ring happens as an album but then in the years right after their divorce Golden Ring is 1976, and between 1976 and 1980, they have four more top five hits. So what they did, I'm assuming, with joy and sincerity and the desire to get up and go to work when they were married and singing together, they managed to 
present the same quality of art and that same public face of celebrity to an audience that was always very much rooting for them to get back together. Jones has often commented that he had a real hard time making Golden Ring and the records that came afterwards because he knew that it wouldn't be a good idea for them to get back together. And the public was so caught up in that idea to the country music public at this time in the mid seventies is probably similar to what the Beatle people had been doing in the earlier seventies and the public pressure of, will they get back together? We want them to get back together. That was enough to really sour George Jones on those records they made through the second half of the seventies. But again, they produced four top five hits, the professionalism, the artistic quality is so intense and so good that I'm going to speculate in some ways it rises above the personal difficulty. Well, it's also probably being fueled a little bit by the personal difficulty. It's a fine line to walk. And in George's case, he solves a lot of those problems by drinking. Uh, Tammy is a total team player through this. The woman, she's been a big star. She has sold a lot of records. She has an extraordinary voice. But she follows George Jones in the vocals. They're not like Everly's where it's unison and harmony all the time. One is kind of following the other. She and other people have commented on nobody can sing like George Jones. He's hard to follow. You're not sure when he's coming in. You're not sure of the phrasing. He has often said he can take a word with two syllables and make it five or six syllables. And that's the truth. So Tammy is artist enough and aware enough that she not exactly is second banana to George, but she does follow his lead. Much like a couple dancing, she's kind of following what he's laying out. It really is an incredible record. It's a record that should be a couple in love. It's a couple coming out of a very volatile divorce. They have a nice hit off this record with Crying Time. That takes us back to our friend Buck Owens, the hit machine. Uh, Crying Time was the B-side of Tiger by the Tail. Oh, it's crying time again. You're gonna leave me I can see that far away look in your eyes I can tell by the way you hold me, darling It's also a song that Ray Charles won two Grammy Awards for his version of it. Tammy and George take it on on this record, and it's just fantastic. The other thing they do that's kind of lighthearted and downright funny, especially given the personal circumstance they were in, is a Bobby Braddock song called Did You Ever. And as a kid, if you were ever at summer camp and the grown-ups are singing a song and you know that the line of the song is going to rhyme with the word hell, and then all of a sudden all the counselors go, well, and change the joke, it's... A more adult version of that. Does your mother know I'll bet? Oh, no, I haven't told her yet. 
Well, I just wonder, do you ever All the time Just for old time's sake Know that would make it harder well, are you sure that you don't mind? There's a lot of double entendres in the song, a lot of kind of sly sexual humor. It is hilarious. It serves as the basis for a parody song in, I guess, what you would call a mockumentary, the fake music documentary called Walk Hard. Dewey Cox and his female partner sing a song called Let's Duet. And you have to be careful how you say it, because that's the gag. In my dreams, you're blowing me some kisses. That's one of my favorite things to do. You and I could go down in history. That's what I'm praying to do with you. Uh, that's entirely based on the Bobby Braddock tune, Did You Ever, Tammy and George just sound like a sassy couple in the kitchen, kind of getting on each other's nerves a little bit. It's warm. It's hilarious. Tammy, did you ever? Not so much that you could notice. Well, could you estimate how many? Will you do it anymore? As soon as you walk out. It is the exact opposite of what they're going through in their personal situation together. I think that's a testament to their professionalism and just the sheer quality. You know, you may not get along personally, but the chemistry and the skill between them, you just can't ignore that. Well, will you do it anymore? As I just wondered, did you ever do it in ways that make us feel good? Let's do it and make that sacred sound. Could I fix you once more? No, thanks. I just had one. Then how about a nice big? Well, that would be just fine. discussed his list that you have great loss great love a lot of turmoil equals fantastic music and that's the case here golden ring 1976 and again tammy wynette and george jones will carry this on for a few more years and have a few more hits two of the most amazing voices in country or in any kind of music Go out and get this record. It's just really, really great. In a pawn shop in Chicago On a sunny summer day A couple gazes at The wedding rings there on display Golden ring talking about two legends combined into one they had a lot of problems but they also had some amazing gifts 
And we're lucky enough to be able to experience those gifts by listening to this album. Well, folks, because it is winter and Chris and I are both in the Midwest, it is time for something big, hearty, and warm. And because I've been yakking about my favorite records, Chris is going to read us the recipe this episode. It is the Cash Family Recipe for beef pot roast with potatoes and carrots. I don't think they spent a lot of time coming up with the name, but it's a damn good recipe. Enjoy. For this recipe, you will need salt and black pepper. How much? Doesn't say. Johnny didn't care about those details. Neither should you. You'll need one two and a half pound beef roast, a half cup all-purpose flour, three tablespoons of vegetable oil or shortening, three cups water divided, two large baking potatoes cut into one to two inch chunks, two celery stalks cut into one to two inch pieces, one and a half cups of sliced carrots, uh, about three to four carrots, a half a large sweet onion chopped into one to two inch pieces, three cloves of garlic finely chopped, two sprigs of fresh parsley, or two to three teaspoons of dried parsley, half a teaspoon of rubbed sage, and a pinch of salt and black pepper. For those who are paying attention, we have salt and pepper at the beginning of this list of ingredients and the end, but it's more specific at the end. How do we cook this? Heat the oven to 375 degrees. Generously salt and pepper the meat on all sides, then dredge in flour. Heat the oil in a large Dutch oven or other heavy-duty oven-proof baking pan on the stove over medium heat. Brown the roast in the pan on all three sides, three to four minutes each side or until a rich brown. Remove the roast from the pan and set aside. Add the remainder of the flour to the pan, stirring constantly. Brown the flour, adding a bit more oil if needed, being careful not to burn the flour. Whisk in one and a half cups of water, stirring and cooking on medium-high heat until the gravy begins to thicken. Return the roast to the pan, then turn off the heat and add all of the potatoes, celery, carrots, onion, garlic, parsley, and sage. Add the remainder of the water to the pan to almost cover the vegetables. Sprinkle with a pinch of salt and pepper. Cover and cook in the oven at 375 degrees for 20 minutes, then turn the heat down to 285 degrees and cook for another five hours or until the roast and vegetables are tender. Now you're going to want to go back and listen to the first episode we did on murder ballads because the recipe in that episode was the Cash Family Cornbread Recipe and this recipe goes great with that one. It'll make four to six servings. Coming in at number 11, an artist which I also featured, The Essential Bill Monroe, which is recordings from 1945 to 1949. Jim, we've talked a little bit about bluegrass music on some of your selections prior. Let's talk about it a little more. Well, this guy is the king. and Bluegrass exists as something to be celebrated in the early 70s by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. It exists in the year 2000 as something to be celebrated by Dallas and Krauss, the Cohen brothers and the folks that put together the old brother soundtrack. There would be absolutely nothing to talk about or celebrate if it wasn't for the early 1940s and the genius of Bill Monroe. 
and his co-conspirators in Flat and Scruggs. These guys invent a whole new style of music. Bluegrass is often referred to with the qualities of the high lonesome sound. That's certainly that high tenor voice that comes with Monroe and the other singers in the Bluegrass Boys and the harmonies they work on. I'm going back to old Kentucky There to see my daddy I'm going back to old Kentucky Where the skies are only It's also that incredibly shredding, flashy, almost like a trapeze act, mandolin style. Or to Hendrix or Jeff Beck, and you're thinking, God, that's like the beauty and the passion of a guy wrestling with his guitar up on a high wire across Niagara Falls. Yeah, well, it is, and it's flipping brilliant. But Bill Monroe did it in the 1940s on a little old mandolin. I mean, really, the first shredding in, in that kind of setting that we would think of. The only other example would be Mabel Carter and her guitar style through the late 20s and 30s. But here in the early to mid-1940s, we have Bill Monroe creating instrumentally, which, you know, to me in the rock era would be a power trio. I know they have a stand-up bass, but essentially you have the mandolin, the banjo, and the acoustic guitar. And the songs are extraordinary. When we talked about this on Chris's list, we talked about Blue Moon of Kentucky and the huge influence and reach that that song has had. And Elvis did it. Lots of people have done it since then. Bill Monroe became happy about all that once the royalty checks started showing up. With Blue Moon of Kentucky, we can take an arrangement by a, a great rockabilly player in Brian Setzer. And you can take an all-time musical and rhythm and blues legend like Ray Charles, and either one of them can completely own that song and transform it into something new and powerful while also retaining the spirit and the key ingredients of what Bill Monroe so brilliantly created. A blue moon Kentucky, keep on a shining, shining, shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. Of Kentucky, keep on a shining, shine on the one that's gone me blue. But the other thing you really get with this type of music is the murder ballads that contributes to this idea of the high lonesome sound. You also get a lot of tragic love stories. And because these are good old Southern boys raised by mama in the 1920s and 30s when they were kids, there's a lot of gospel music in this 
early bluegrass tradition. Do you think of the cross on which Jesus died, of the blood he shed for you? Are you prepared to meet him in that land of love? By his word are you going And it comes down to being a nice mix of a common thing in country music. We are praising, we are celebrating, we are searching and hoping for redemption because we have been loving and killing and drinking and carousing and all those other things. And what's the point of having a good tragic love song or a good murder ballad if you don't also have a song about thanks and praises to try to get your heart and soul out of that sad situation? So, yeah, Blue Moon of Kentucky. I mean, if that was the only thing Bill Monroe ever did, that would be on a list. And he would be fantastic and revered forever. There's just so much more to the man's genius that it's worth putting on my list, on Chris's list, on, you know, your list, your friend's list. Go down the street, ask people about their list and about the great Bill Monroe, and he just... His reach is everywhere. And again, you get the all-time classic, a key element of the American songbook with Blue Moon of Kentucky, but you also get what is one of the first jam bands in existence. So Bill Monroe invented a type of music, invented a style of singing with the high lonesome, incredible soloist, a wonderful mix of dance songs, gospel songs of tragic love stories just total package all around and the guy was the king of what he did and musicians to this day are still wondering how he did it and celebrating that he did it you can't go wrong here obviously I clearly myself have a, a pretty deep love for the man and his music, but something we talked about during my episode, I want to touch on again. So at Monroe's shows, audience taping of the performances was not only allowed, it was encouraged. I looked at this as a way to essentially do advanced publicity because fans of theirs would have a few recordings of shows they had done. They would spread them around to their friends. Those friends would then listen to the music and want to go see it as well. And the beauty of all this is it means that those shows still exist to this day. If you go online and search, you won't have a very hard time finding an awful lot of live Monroe performances, whether they were initially broadcast on the radio or just played at a music festival somewhere or just one of Monroe's weekend dates, whatever the case may be, you're going to be able to find these. The quality is pretty good. And for anyone who has real serious compunctions about not stealing music, you're not stealing when you listen to these. Again, this was not only allowed, but encouraged. So do yourself a favor, go on to whatever BitTorrent site you may use or know about. If you don't particularly use them, ask your friends. You're going to be able to find an awful lot of Bill Monroe music out there. And the man himself would want you to listen to it. So you should do that. Honor his legacy. Listen to his music. 
you know, Chris, that's an excellent point, and thanks for bringing it up. I'm kind of thinking I should have thought of that myself to some degree. Uh, Bill Monroe and his bluegrass scene did start this idea of audience recording with the support and the encouragement from the artists themselves. Now, in earlier days, before you know, the mid-1940s, this would have been very, very difficult because of a lack of the available equipment. But during World War II, in American electronics, you get huge advances, in large part because of the war of radio technology, recording technology, and the idea of mag magnetic tape. Now, in the 40s and 50s, if you were recording live music in a setting like this, you're not a professional. You're not buck owens crew bringing recording gear into the carnegie theater you're a fan you're an enthusiast you're lugging around a big old reel-to-reel -reel tape machine there's no cassette here there's no little ipod thing or little electronic thing with a built-in chip and a microphone you're basically lugging around something that's you know as big as kitchen appliances and then the microphones to do that these are the really early days of any portable recording technology. And yeah, a lot of Monroe's opinion on this, and this is echoed by Jerry Garcia later, the famous quote of, well, once I play it, I'm done with it. They can have it. That's what they showed up for anyway. And Monroe, not only a genius in inventing a new kind of music, but a new kind of marketing. Because if you have a friend with a tape recorder who went to a bluegrass fest, and then you come over for dinner when they get home and you get to hear the recording, then you're very likely to go out and buy a ticket when that performer comes around to your town the next time. This is something that has gone hand in hand with the bluegrass movement. In later parts of Monroe's career, he hosted a festival called the Bean Blossom Festival on property he owned in Indiana. And it was very much a home recording enthusiast paradise. Now, this phenomenon would bleed into the rock and roll era and into the personal lives of your co-hosts here uh, later on. The Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers through the 70s and 80s encouraged audience taping. And you'd get support and help from the sound crew. There were huge leaps in technology and portability and the knowledge that home enthusiasts had for this thing. And then later on, that gets picked up by another fine American band, Los Lobos. So you go to some of these concerts, and you'd see a little roped-off area by the soundboard where there would be people with giant tripods and tons of batteries and flashlights and waterproof bags and recording equipment all over the place. It was a real interesting phenomenon. Uh, for me, I got caught up in this around 1987, uh, starting as part of the field recording group for the Grateful Dead here in the Midwest. And that moved on to the Allman Brothers and then to Los Lobos. And in the later half of my days doing this, as we're getting into the early 2000s, then I managed to sucker Chris here to get on board and say, um, yeah, can you carry this for me? Uh, can you remember these batteries for me? And sure enough, you know, Chris came along for the ride, and I was damn glad for it. You get a lot of really good music this way. And aside from the big names like the Almonds or the Grateful Dead, I... Well, 
Doc Watson. I never got to see Bill Monroe, and that would have really been fantastic because he was the guy that first was like, hey, you got a tape recorder? I'm playing some music. Let's get together. Let's kick this music around. See if you can't get more people to buy tickets to my shows. It's a brilliant marketing strategy, and it's really created a whole new hobby and a whole wave of technology in terms of portable recording. Again, another testament to the man's genius. And now we're crossing over to the number 10 spot. We're more than halfway home. Jim's going to talk to us about Bob Wills, the essential 1935 to 1973 recordings. We talked about this one a little bit in the last episode as it's on my list as well. But Jim's going to let us know why Bob Wills is still the king. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, definitely... Definitely still the king. With Bill Monroe, we were just talking about this idea of a jam band or a band deliberately set up to show off the instrumental skill of the band members. Holy jeez. Bob Wills is developing his Western swing style. There's maybe just a small number of other people that could claim to be pioneers in this type of music. But Bob Wills is really the guy. And on the East Coast, in New York, you have Duke Ellington developing a big band ensemble and sound and style with a real emphasis on piano and horn section. With Bob Wills in Texas and in Oklahoma in that same time, you have a guy developing a big band ensemble, a swing sound, the piano, especially that stride style of piano that you get from African-American traditions is a big deal. The difference here is instead of a horn section, you get a string section. You get guitars, fiddles, violins, you call it whatever you want. It's the same thing. And you get steel guitar. And Wills, and I think in his case, this is a technical term, was often regarded as a crazy ill-tempered bastard the guy was a relentless drunk but also a relentless genius he's the guy that goes to his guitar players especially the great leon mcauliffe and eldon shamblin you have an electric guitar and a steel guitar pair up here and that's kind of the the model that sets up ernest tubb for the way he created the guitar pairings in his bands but Wills is one of the first guys to go to his two guitar players and say, um, if you could plug that in and make it a little louder and a little twangier, we might be on to something here. Oh, yeah. expression we're looking for here is turn goat piss into gasoline because that is what Eldon and Leon did. They're really the first big double guitar pairing in any kind of large band. 
And certainly that idea of a guitar duo is huge in the rock and roll era. You know, starting with folks like Keith Richards and Brian Jones originally in the Stones, the theory that it's one guy with four hands is what it should sound like. You have Weir and Garcia in The Dead. You have Dwayne Allman and Dickie Betts and the Allman Brothers. Even as the Beatles get further into their career, you get to a point where sometimes it's John playing the solo, sometimes it's George. You kind of lose track at points of who's playing what. And that's really the beauty and the original reason to have that kind of guitar pairing. Again, you're looking for something that sounds like one guy with four hands. And Eldon Shamblin and Leon McAuliffe, with the influence and the mentoring from their band leader, Bob Wills, you know, as crazy as the guy was, musically, just a genius. The signature tune that Wills composes for himself, for his band, really for all of us through eternity, is San Antonio Rose. instrumental is a fiddle tune it's kind of a excuse for a lot of fiddle jamming in 1938 bob wills gives this to the world and it's really his theme song for the next 40 years his publishing company oddly enough the irving berlin music publishing company comes to him in the spring of 1940 and says we could sell a lot more of this incredible huge influential smash hit if it had lyrics now, the lyrics are also credited to Bob Wills, but the unofficial story goes that he gave 10 bucks and a bottle of whiskey to a couple guys in the band, and they kind of did it by committee. Either way, San Antonio Rose, like Blue Moon of Kentucky, is one of those core songs in the American songbook. Everybody knows it. Everybody's done it. In 1940, shortly after Wills and the Texas Playboys provide lyrics to the song, and again... 1940 you're coming out of the depression you're getting into the world war ii era there's not a lot of money that folks have to spend on record players and records but in 1940 bing crosby not a country artist at all takes the song san antonio rose and sells over a million copies of it still here's my broken song of love moon in all your splendor know only my heart call back my rose rose of san antonio crosby's a great singer no doubt weird guy great singer but that's the power of the actual composition you have a lounge crooner who takes a hardcore country song and you don't associate bing crosby with texas at all and the guy sells over a million copies of this in an era where folks are just recovering from the Depression. And if that's not enough, over the years, San Antonio Rose gets covered by Patsy Cline, Merle Haggard, Gene Autry, the Mills Brothers, Flacco Jimenez, George Jones, Elvis, Reba McIntyre, Willie Nelson, and Doc Watson. 
One of the measuring sticks we use here at the Hayride for the staying quality or the power of a songwriter is what happens to the song after it leaves the original performance, the original composer. If you have a list of people like this, again, from Patsy Cline to Reba McIntyre to Elvis to the Mills Brothers, and they pick up the song and take it for a little walk in the park, to me, that's almost always a sign that you're really onto something there. Uh, the guitar element that Wills creates, to get back to that, throughout these records, he has a tendency to lean on that old French Cajun tradition where you call out the soloists around the dance hall. That's a lot of where that comes from. Tommy Duncan, the amazing vocalist he has through the classic part of his career, he gets called on a lot. But Leon and Eldon and that twin guitar boogie, as Wills likes to call it, those guys get called out almost just as much. If you take the Duke Ellington model, and I'm sure Wills is aware of what Ellington is doing because they're around the same time, but if you're on the other side of the country and you think, well, I don't have a lot of saxophones, a lot of trumpets, I have cowboy hats and I have guitar players and I have a fiddle, he, Again, it's just a powerhouse ensemble. All together now. Oh, Hallelujah. Here's them three boys, Ellen Herbie Tiny. The thing about Wills himself, not just as a songwriter. He's not a real great singer. I think that's why he kind of takes on that MC or that toasting role with his vocalists and with his musicians. But the guy's violin style is just from outer space. The, the way you listen to Prince and you think, well, I'm hearing Sly Stone, I'm hearing James Brown, I'm hearing Jimi Hendrix. But Prince is contributing something to this that is not from this earth. I think the same rule applies to Bob Wills. Gather around, friends, why hurry? Let's all stay a little longer. Who would have been around the French Cajun fiddle traditions. He certainly would have had some knowledge of what was going on in Appalachia, where you get the Scottish and the Irish fiddle tradition coming in with the immigrants to America Southeast. And then the other place you get a French fiddle influence is up in Quebec in the folk, what they call the Quebecois style. Um, and if that's something you're into, there's a very, very current and happening band called Levant du Nord, which is a Quebec Canadian band. Those guys really carry on the traditional style as much as the guys in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did. So Wills is exposed to all of these traditions, but he's out on his own in Texas and a little bit Oklahoma here and there. He takes all those styles. He adds whatever he brought with him from whatever part of outer space he comes from and just creates this incredible, unique fiddle style that fits with these guitar jams and this huge band ensemble in just such a perfect way. You know, you get San Antonio Rose, you get the twin guitar special, 
You get one of Chris's favorites with Roly Poly. You get one of Willie Nelson's favorites. He can eat an apple pie and never even bat an eye. He likes everything from soup to hay. Holy poly, daddy's little fatty. I bet he's gonna be a man someday. That created the other side of the coin to what Duke Ellington was doing. If you create something that can be discussed and described and enjoyed in the same mentions as Duke Ellington, okay, I think that speaks to quality right there. Um, you have Bob Wills, uh, one of the first jam bands in American music, one of the early pioneers of that double guitar lineup. And you have a guy that created a song that was covered by everyone, everywhere, all the time. That's a consistent theme for the list that Chris and I put together. Wow. Just a powerhouse of a band. It just knock you on your butt every time it's bob wills and the texas playboys i've already said too much go listen to this right now and of course from this band we also get the amazing tommy duncan on vocals uh there's really probably not enough that's been said about tommy there's a lot more that should be said about tommy i'm sure we're going to talk about him in future episodes of the hayride and he always seemed content within the structure of the band, which I think is something that gets lost a lot in the music industry as a whole. You have somebody who's a successful part of a project. All of a sudden, there's some manager somewhere who's pushing them to immediately leave and go solo and do their own thing and get bigger. And in Tommy's case, you know, he really puts a stamp on a lot of these recordings. So it's a good thing that we're able to enjoy them in hindsight. Uh, again, one of the nice things about not only this record, but other records on this list, like the Bill Monroe or Ernest Tubb records, is that even though they were recorded and released at a time in which the release would not have necessarily sounded that good, because you were probably listening to it on a tinny speaker through an old 78 gramophone, the actual source recordings remained pretty high quality. And so these days you can hear a really nice, clean version of all of these songs. So like Jim said, go out and get the record, enjoy the record. Climbing one more rung up the ladder on Jim's list. At number nine, we have Coal Miner's Daughter by Loretta Lynn. So Jim, let's enlighten the listeners. What do you got? Well, folks, uh, Loretta Lynn, during that late 1970 and into 1971 period, was on a three-album hot streak here. All the records, classics, all the records sold a lot and excellent reviews. This woman was working her sequence off in 1970 and 1971. Uh, she has a wonderful collaboration going on with the Bradley Brothers. Harold Bradley playing guitar and bass on a lot of these songs, and Owen Bradley uh, running the production and the recording for these projects. In 1970, she does Loretta Writes Them and Sings Them, so it's a record of her original material, as the title suggests. And it, it's a brilliant record. It really helps to establish her as a songwriter and as a singer, She'd been making records through the 60s, but this is kind of the period where she takes off. 
um, recorded at the end of 1970 and in the early days of January 71, Coal Miner's Daughter finally shows up in the stores. And then later in 1971, she begins the first of 10 duet albums with the great Conway Twitty. The first one from 1971 is We Only Make Believe. So she's got incredible collaborators here. She's got a hot streak during this time. And Coal Miner's Daughter, we've talked about that song a lot. It's deeply personal and autobiographical. It really is true to her childhood experience. Money made from selling a hog. Daddy always managed to get the money somewhere. She's written two other songs for this record that often go overlooked. Uh, the first one is called Anyone Any Worse. But if how much I love him tells how bad I am, then you won't find anyone any worse anywhere. The other one is called What Makes Me Tick. The way I let you treat me to make me sick I'm gonna have my head examined and find out what makes me tick If I had the brains of a dummy I'd be smart Cause there ain't no feeling in a poor dummy During this time like Tammy Wynette and Dolly Parton is kind of picking up the Patsy Cline torch Patsy died in the early 60s Loretta and Tammy and Dolly are really running with that independent streak, not just in terms of the independent woman, musician, singer thing, but also taking more and more control with the songwriting and the production and the arranging going on behind the scenes. Loretta is a fine songwriter in her own right. And the three songs that she does for this record are really incredible and you know honestly if it was just coal miner's daughter sort of like the blue moon of kentucky thing you know you've created three minutes of perfection in the world of art well done go home and enjoy yourself but with the two other originals on this record she just keeps it coming and there's no drop in quality and Coal Miner Daughter, that's the one we all know and love. But the other two songs, just as good. No drop in quality. The woman clearly knows what she's doing. This era of 1970 and 71 might as well be just one big chunk of the calendar. It's kind of all the same for Loretta. She didn't stop writing. She didn't stop working. The three records that come out during this time, truly exceptional. They really kick her into the stratosphere as a musician and a celebrity. By the time you get to the end of the 70s and the film of Cole Liner's daughter comes out with Sissy Spacek and Tommy Lee Jones in the leads as Loretta and her husband, it's very much the same thing with Dolly Parton. These are two incredible women, singers, songwriters that start to create their wave of peak momentum in the early 70s. And by the time you get to the end of the decade, 
there's a hit movie that each one of them can lay claim to and they've just become institutions in the world of american music so with the great ernest tubb giving the after party and the ongoing saturday night platform with the midnight jamboree that would follow the opry broadcast out of support for a young loretta lynn and because patsy klein is in the hospital at this point in the early 60s recovering from a really bad car accident loretta comes in does a patsy song on the jamboree the story goes that patsy hears this on the radio she's still recovering in the hospital she sends her husband over to ernest tubbs record store to pick up a young loretta lynn has her come over to the hospital and it's basically okay i heard you on the radio singing one of my songs and my reaction is i have to meet you right away for somebody like patsy klein to offer that kind of compliment and encouragement to a young singer who you know goes on to become the powerhouse that is loretta lynn that's just an extraordinary act of kindness and it really speaks to this ongoing theme in i think all music and all great storytelling of an unbroken circle one thing leads to another leads to another and then it turns out they're all kind of sharing parts of each other just across the artistic spectrum it's a great story it speaks very well of the kindness of patsy klein and it really speaks to what a profound impact the voice of Loretta Lynn has on everybody who hears it. Now, coming in at number eight on Jim's list, an artist that we've spoken about many times on the Hayride, an artist we're never going to stop speaking about, Merle Haggard with Mama Tried from 1968. Jim, give us a little something. Well, it's Merle Haggard at the tail end of the great outlaw trilogy of records that comes out between 1966 and 1968 this is one of the few where rolling stone and their wisdom wound up agreeing with me so thank you to rolling stone um in 1966 merle haggard puts out the lonesome fugitive album in 1967 a record we've talked about a lot because it's phenomenal sing me back home from 1967 that takes us to 1968 and mama tried the name of the album and the number one hit single from july of 1968. merle haggard is an extraordinary story as a young man he got in a lot of trouble did a little time at san quentin where he saw johnny cash perform live this is years before the legendary recorded san quentin concert and merle is really influenced by that and it really makes a huge impact on him and he knows he has some musical ability it's really a matter of making the choices and establishing the priorities in his life and by the end of the 60s, he's created three extraordinary records. He's becoming a big star. He's certainly a first-class musician all around. The singing, the songwriting. Again, another man with a Fender Telecaster kicking out some incredible country music. There is something about that guitar and the people who really 
know how to get their hands around one, it's a nice combination. This record, again, features the big hit single, Mama Tried, a song that was heavily covered by the Grateful Dead. They're huge Merle Haggard fans. Keith Richards, also a very big self-professed Merle Haggard fan. As we've said many times, good music is good music. It doesn't matter what kind of label you put on it. It's just one is going to lead to the other and back to the other. It is a constant circle of something that really matters a lot to the human spirit. Good quality music. This record has a song that I have always thought was one of the great prison songs. It's also similar to Marty Robbins' El Paso and that it's sort of this inner narrative of a man at the end of his life. This song is The Green, Green Grass of Home, written by Curly Putman and Bobby Braddock, who we've just been talking about in terms of his work with George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Again, folks, one thing leads to another, leads right back to the same thing. It's fun stuff, and it's nice to look at it that way. Uh, Bobby Braddock had also had a hand in writing He Stopped Loving Her Today. That brings him back to George Jones. But Green Green Grass of Home is extraordinary. It's been covered by Porter Wagner, by Elvis, by Johnny Cash, Tom Jones, Charlie Pride, Graham Parsons. It's good to touch the green, green grass of home. The old house is still standing, though the paint is cracked and dry. There's the old oak tree that I used to play on. It's just extraordinary. You have prison, you have loss, you have a struggle for redemption, you have somebody who in their mind is escaping to a better time, a better place, the warmth and the security of home and hearth and family. But the reality that they're living in the physical world is one of pain or imprisonment in the case of Green Green Grass of Home. Then I awake and I look around me at the four gray walls that surround me. And I realize that I was only dreaming. Well, there's the guard and there's the sad old Padre. Merle is a storyteller. You know, if you have five or six days, we'd still be talking about him. Uh, the songwriting, the guitar playing. He really, over these three records in the mid to late 60s, starting with Lonesome Fugitive and then Sing Me Back Home and then Mama Tried. It, it's just an extraordinary body of work. The music's that good. Stories are that good. The man was that serious about what he wanted to share with the world, and he just nails it. Merle Haggard, Mama Tried. Please go listen to this record. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jim. This album is incredible from the opening lick of Mama Tried 
to the very end of Too Many Bridges to Cross Over, the song that ends side two. Uh, as a note of interest to the listeners, the opening lick to Mama Tried is actually James Burton, Elvis's old guitar player, finger-picking on a dobro. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride. Okay, and now coming in at number seven on Jim's list, we have an album that we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, this one actually made Rolling Stone's list and my list, and here it is again. Uh, but Jim will give us some information that we didn't have before. So, Jim. Tell us what it is we should focus on the next time we listen to Coat of Many Colors by the amazing Miss Dolly Parton. Thanks, Chris. Yes, at number seven, I have Dolly Parton, The Coat of Many Colors from 1971. Uh, Chris, you had this at number 11. Rolling Stone had this at number one. So I, I think there's enough agreement from all three parties here. Uh, again, this is number seven for me. This is an extraordinary record for her, but it's also part of a much larger pattern that's going on in both the country world and the rock and roll world uh, from the late 60s into the early 70s. This is part of a really amazing three-record run for Dolly Parton. Uh, right after this, in 1973, we get My Tennessee Mountain Home, and then in 1974, we get, you know, one of her greatest with Jolene. The late 60s through the early 70s is such an incredibly fertile, not just output, but quality period. Uh, again, for both country and rock music, we had talked earlier uh, just at number eight, with Merle Haggard being in the middle of a nice three-record run, uh, starting with Lonesome Fugitive and then finishing with Mama Tried. We talked about Loretta Lynn and her early 70s run centered around the Coal Miner's Daughter record. In the rock and roll world at this point, you get the Rolling Stones with Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and then Exile on Main Street. You hear a lot of country influence through those records. You have the Kinks with Village Green, Arthur, and then Muswell Hillbillies. You have the Grateful Dead with their two solid country Americana albums, Working Men's Dead and American Beauty. They follow that up with a really powerful straight rock and roll record in the Europe 72 album. Five dollar bill that keeps him happy all the time. 
It's really just an extraordinary period in music. Uh, you also have Johnny Cash with the Folsom and San Quentin albums and then uh, landing the network TV show. It, like I said, it's just an incredibly beautiful time for both output and quality. And Dolly's right in the middle of all that. This is her eighth record. She's had a television success in partnership with Porter Wagner. They've made a lot of really great records together, recorded a lot of great songs. Dolly is beginning to step out on her own here. And when we've talked about Dolly at the beginning of the 70s, it's hard not to point out that by the end of the 70s, very much like Loretta Lynn, she's just kind of an institution at that point. Uh, she has, in Dolly's case, not just the 9 to 5 movie that comes out at the end of the 70s, and the hit single from that, but there was a TV movie based around Coat of Many Colors that Dolly did the um, the basic storyline for and then turned it over to some screenwriters, but she was executive producer and she was the narrator. They had this 10-year-old girl that Dolly helped to do the casting for play young Dolly. They had a, somebody playing the part of Mama and they made the coat and they told the story. It's hard to find these days but if you can track it down or maybe find some clips of it on youtube it would definitely be worth checking out uh again that's the tv movie for coat of many colors and i told him all the love my mama sewed in every stitch and i told him all the story mama told me why she sewed and how my coat of many colors was worth more than all their clothes that song we know is the hit and the focal point of this record but the preview single that came out for this record a few months before the album the album comes out in october of 71 and in june of that year the preview single is my blue tears fly away from my window little So a Dolly Parton original, we have said many times with great reason on this program that she is a phenomenal songwriter. It's because she truly is. My Blue Tears, to me, struck me as really powerful because she taps into something that I think represents the exceptional genius of Hank Williams songwriting. So I, without... Any hesitation, I am putting Dolly on that level in terms of her skill as a lyricist. Hank Williams got onto this idea of the bird, the whippoorwill, that was too blue to fly. And it's such a specific observation. And it's something that goes so against the nature of the creature in question. Birds fly. That's what they do. They probably don't even think about it half the time. But the realization that the bird is too sad. That's an extraordinary thing in songwriting. Dolly really captures that same quality and that same spirit with My Blue Tears. She talks about a 
a bird on her window spreading its blue wings while Dolly stays inside and sheds her blue tears. The color choice is obvious. In literature, in story writing, and certainly in good songwriting, you're following those same kind of qualities. So if someone is sad, if someone is trying to show loss, it's blue. That's just the color you go with. In the cowboy music, if you're trying to show the ending of life or the giving up of life or something, it's always west, where the sun sets, not where the sun rises. That's a life-affirming symbol. So to say that these people are writing songs with a quality that you would find in good literature is not uh, a joke or a light thing. If you go back to Woody Guthrie, if you go back to Hank Williams in the 60s, people recognize Bob Dylan and John Lennon for this sort of thing. But if you can judge the songwriting, the lyrics in the same quality that you would judge a William Faulkner story, then you know that you're dealing with some kind of very thoughtful, deliberate quality here that shows the skill of these writers. And My Blue Tears, it, it's really that. You have, again, the color blue, obviously that sets the emotional tone. But you have, like Hank Williams did, this contrast between the bird and the person. And in Dolly's case, she's trying to encourage the bird to take off and spread its wings. She's going to stay inside and cry. Go spread your blue wings and I'll shed my blue tears. For the one that I have loved, he has left me and gone. The sense of confinement, the sense of not being able to lose the sad feeling, that's incredibly well done in this song and in a lot of Dolly's writing, especially on this record. Um, this record also takes one of those really common topics and conventions in country music and completely turns it around on its head and gives you kind of both sides of the issue. The issue is mama. Dolly Parton opens the record with Coat of Many Colors. Her mother gets these old cloths, these old rags, and she works her butt off to put together a coat, a coat that looks like it's made by people in poverty from things that they have left over. But Mama perseveres. She makes the coat. She shows that love and that hard work to a young Dolly Parton. It's a true story. And then in the immediate next song, Traveling Man, Dolly is getting set to hit the road with a good-looking guy who came rolling into town. And dang it, if not, three minutes later, when you get to the end of the song, it's Dolly's mama who wedged her way in between Dolly and the man and leaves town with the traveling man. I made plans to run away with that traveling man on Saturday. It's a really wonderful way in just two short songs to take both versions of how Mama falls into country music lore. You get the Mama who is always there to save you and pick you up and carry you through a rough childhood. 
And then you get the mama who first chance she gets is going to leave town with the guy you were going to leave town with. And uh, the other thing I can say about My Blue Tears is Dolly does revisit this song later in her career as a trio arrangement with Emmylou Harris and Linda Ronstadt. The harmonies on that are just gorgeous. Ways not you walk on the coldness in here Or trouble me not, though you Out of respect for Chris's point about short, sweet, quality, don't waste a note, don't waste a lyric, this album is 28 minutes long. You barely have time to make the sandwich and make the tea and then sit down and it's over. But you're going to want to listen to it again and again. And again, 1971, Dolly Parton, coat of many colors. She is an extraordinary force of nature. Dolly's the queen. I, I just, I really think that there's something to be said about this music, and this album says it all. And now, coming in at number six, Jim will have the unenviable task again of following both Rolling Stone and myself, as we both had this one on our lists as well. So here, at number six, the incomparable Patsy Cline with Showcase. Jim, I love it. Rolling Stone loves it. Why do you love it? Well, it's Patsy Cline. It's her great album. You know, it's, it's the great work of her career. It does contain her two really big signature songs in Crazy, which we had a nice analysis of uh, when we examined Chris's top 20 list. The other all-time phenomenal classic on this record is I Fall to Pieces, and I am more than happy to pick that one up and discuss it for my list. This is part of Patsy Cline's great collaboration with the Bradley brothers, uh, Owen Bradley, the producer and arranger, and Harold Bradley, the guitar player. We also have future Neil Young collaborator Ben Keith playing steel guitar on this. But the story with I Fall to Pieces, this is a song written by Harlan Howard. Brenda Lee had rejected it. Owen Bradley was overheard having an argument with other people in the studio about not really liking the song, not thinking it was going to work. Brenda Lee had already turned it down. And Patsy Cline overhears this. We have pointed out before that she has taken on arrangements of songs where there have been multiple voices or multiple instruments, and she's just pulled it off herself as a single voice. So she overhears this discussion and she's like, well, you know what? I'll try it. This is a common theme for Patsy and she pretty much always delivers. So they go into the studio to do this. Again, Owen Bradley is producing and arranging the session. And Patsy is introduced to the Jordanaires, the guys who really made their mark as the backup singers for the Elvis records right after he left Sun. So like on Don't Be Cruel, It's Now or Never. Tomorrow will be 
when I first saw you with your smile so That's the Jordanaires, and they are really the big Nashville male backing vocal group. And, you know, Owen Bradley didn't particularly like the song, I Fall to Pieces. When Patsy first met the Jordanaires, she didn't particularly like the Jordanaires because she felt, hey, clearly I can sing all this stuff on my own. I can handle it, no problem. And she saw the Jordanaires as being competition is trying to move in on her action and she wasn't sure that they would find a proper musical spot to fill in with her and, and that's the point they're backup singers they should create a nice fluffy cloud of oohs and ahs for patsy to just soar right over how can i be just your friend you want me to act like we've never kissed. You want me to forget. And that's what they wind up doing. But if you're an incredibly strong personality singer and you meet people that you're being told are going to be your backup singers and you kind of have this put upon you and you don't get a lot of choice in it, it's really hard to figure out a way to get over the personality parts and to just make that work. And eventually they do because the Jordanaires have a wonderful collaboration supporting Patsy Cline. And we talked about that, you know, last time we talk about it this time because those guys were good. They filled out vocals on a lot of the records from this era in country music. And it, again, they were clearly good enough with their voices to get all this work and be on all these records. But it turns out that they were decent enough guys overall that they understood the relationship between the artist and the backup singers. And when you have people that are willing to be role players, to be good support players, then you really have a team effort and that shows in the recording. So Patsy and Owen Bradley kind of wrestled back and forth we can't do this song in straight time. It's just another torch ballad. There's a lot of these. It's We have to figure out some way to change the arrangement or the time signature to make this more unique. And they really just kept banging their head against the wall because sometimes, you know, a song is only going to fit into a certain arrangement or a certain rhythmic pattern. And I Fall to Pieces, it's a sad torch ballad. It is one of the great breakup songs of all time. So they finally just faced the fact that the only way to do it was straight. And if you're worried about it sounding like too many other pop records from that time, then you have to make sure that if you're doing something in a fairly standard and typical formula, you have to do it so extraordinarily well that you overcome the limitations of the formula that you were trying to, you know, get around in the first place. So they couldn't find a new and funky way to do it. They did it straight. And Patsy Cline is such a unique, extraordinary, powerful singer that it, she just overcomes any thought of taking this song and lumping it in with other torch ballads. It becomes something really special and unique 
we are going to give you a little bit of her isolated vocals here on this one so you can really hear it just what's so damn special about this time only adds to the flame you tell me to find someone else to love someone who love me too the way you used to do it's one of those songs that becomes part of the sort of consensus classic american songbook as much as duke ellington's take the a train as much as chuck berry with johnny be good this is probably the all-time great sad torch ballad type song and it's just an extraordinary thing that Patsy pulls off. She is that great of a singer. And then because it's Patsy, she turns around and not only does what we would call both kinds, she does country on here. She does some great Western on here. I'm lonesome as I can be. I go out walking after midnight out in the And they were so gay South of the border Down Mexico way But then, because it's Patsy Cline, she really just ups the whole thing, and she does a third kind. She does a great rockabilly track on here. This is a song written by Marshall Brown. It's called Seven Lonely Days. It sounds like kind of a cheap knockoff number. It's a person who is sad every day of the week because they lost their true love. And it has this really cheesy course where the singer talks about, you know, I'm crying every day. And then the backup singers come in with this boo hoo hoo hoo. Oh, my darling, you're crying. There's no use in denying. Because Patsy is such an incredible musical powerhouse, she does country, she does Western, she does rockabilly. It's not both kinds. It's all three. And she just does an extraordinary job with all of these. If she had lived, there's really no telling, you know, what kind of impact she would have continued to have, how she would have grown. Clearly one of the great singers, period. Patsy Klein, and to call this record showcase is kind of an understatement because it's really the Patsy Klein full-on sonic assault of incredible music. And showcase is for me a little underwhelming of a title, uh, but it's brilliant, and you should get it, and you should listen to it, and you will love it. It pains me greatly to announce that a plane bearing Patsy Klein has crashed in the area of Camden, Tennessee and all aboard have perished. Now we're going to cross over into the top five, and we're going to talk about something that we did talk about, both slightly in the Murder Ballad episode, and then more specifically last time with my list. 
So here at number five on Jim's list, Marty Robbins, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs from 1959. So yeah, number five, Marty Robbins, Gunfighter Ballads. This album and Marty himself really ties into a lot of things in the larger fabric of country music and American culture overall. Uh, the album in 2017 is put into the Library of Congress archive as an important essential work in American culture. The album is originally recorded in April of 1959 in one single eight-hour session. The only other record I've heard a similar story about is the Beatles' first album, where George Martin got them in the room, they had about eight hours, and they just basically ran through 10, 12 songs uh, to Chris's liking, songs all around three minutes long, and they just tore through that. And of course, that is an incredibly great album. Well, in 1959, Marty, being way ahead of the curve, knocks this album off in eight hours. That's extraordinary. This is a guy who, through the second half of the 50s, is trying to find his place and his musical voice. He had done a pop single, White Sport Coat with a Pink Carnation, just a couple years before this. A white sport coat and a pink carnation. driving back and forth to his hotel in Ohio, traveling for shows most likely, and he saw a crowd of young people on their way to their school prom. So yeah, how were they dressed? Sport coat, carnation, got it, hit song. But Marty's future was not in being a pop singer or a teen idol or any of that kind of Frankie Avalon kind of stuff. He ultimately found his songwriting voice and his artistic voice in the world of Western music, cowboy music, outlaw music. I'll sing you a true song of Billy the Kid. I'll sing of some desperate deeds that he did. Way out in New Mexico long, long it ago. Was early in the morning when he rode into the town. He came riding from the south side, slowly looking all around. He's an outlaw, loose and running, came the whisper. I rode out of Kansas City, going south to Mexico. I was running, dodging danger, left the girl that I love so. Far behind lay Kansas City and the past that I had earned. Twenty notches on my six-gun mark, the lessons I had learned. It's, you know, country and Western for a reason, folks. It's an all-encompassing thing. And Marty really hits on something with the cowboy and the outlaw music that through the 60s, when we get to Merle Haggard and then we get to Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, this type of music and then the TV shows that follow in the late 50s and through the 60s you get the Lone Ranger, you get the Rifleman, you get Steve McQueen starting his cowboy career with Wanted, Dead or Alive. James Gardner gets his start with Maverick. 
this is, for lack of a better way to describe it, the kind of sense of American mythology. Let's face it, folks, you go around the world and we are, you know, in terms of years we've been here, we are the children, we are the kids, we're the youngsters. And we don't have the tradition that they have in the Japanese world with mythology and truly old cultural stories. We don't have that in the same way that African culture has that. We certainly don't have it in the same way that the Europeans have it, where you can pretty much stroll around and easily point to things that are four, five, six hundred years old. The traditions, the mythology, the cultural stories for the Africans, the Asians, and the Europeans, those things are so much older than the 250, 300 years that we've been fumbling around North America. The Western stories, the idea of might makes right, the idea of self-determination, the idea of one man against the world, rugged individualism is what we call it here uh, when you study these phenomena in, in this country. And then you combine that with that idea of manifest destiny, where we are going to go all the way to the Pacific coast, starting at the Mississippi river. And we are going to do whatever we think it is that, you know, nature, God and government are telling us to do with those lands. So when you tap into these cowboy stories and things like the Lone Ranger, uh, things like the outlaw ballads, the gunfighter mentality, this is kind of where we lay our cultural hat. And it's funny to me because it's also built on extraordinary contradictions. We say, go West, young man. Do your own thing. Blaze your own trail. But then with equal conviction, we will say, don't fight City Hall. Don't rock the boat. Well, you can't have both. And the struggle in our cultural mythology and, and really in the culture itself is how do you balance that contradiction in a way that makes sense and still gives you some kind of code of behavior for how you treat the world around you. Marty really wrestles with all of these things in a way that gives you songs you can dance to that also make you think and get a little philosophical. And, you know, the crowning achievement of that is, of course, El Paso. It's a really sad story. It shifts its literary perspective throughout the song, but it's also a real simple 3-4 dance beat that any ear hall would love to have. Out through the back door of roses I ran Out where the horses were tied I caught a good one, it looked like it could run Up on its back and away I did ride Marty himself is this kind of complicated and contradictory of a guy. Uh, overall, this is his fifth album. He does put a sequel album out the following year in 1960 that's basically more gunfighter ballads. Uh, Big Iron, 
cool water. Again, that Sons of the Pioneers influence that we hear with Patsy Cline and Gene Autry. Uh, and then Billy the Kid is one of the other great songs on this record. Marty himself, uh, later in the 1970s, in fact, between 1971 and 1981, he was trying more to be a professional race car driver than he was uh, an active musician. He often drove the race car that he numbered, number 42. And for fans of the Hitchhiker's Guide, you know that's the answer to everything. I'm not sure if Marty knew that. He did. And for a guy who's a musician and becomes a race car driver because he likes it and he has the money to spend on it, and those are really his only qualifications, over this 10-year period, he winds up with six top 10 finishes in professional racing. Uh, the only other celebrities from a similar era that I can think of that really got into race car driving because they could afford it and they wanted to are Steve McQueen. And then in the 70s, you get George Harrison forming a, a great friendship with Jackie Stewart, the famous European race car driver. Uh, and again, Marty is way ahead of the curve on all of that. Uh, the album Gunfighter Ballads hits number six in the U.S. It hits number 20 in England. Again, 2017 Library of Congress brings it into what they consider to be the important national body of work. It's a stunning back and forth look at a lot of issues that are just kind of fun to sing about and dance about and have a beer over. But if you look really deep throughout this kind of cowboy Western outlaw music, you see some real serious, thoughtful examinations of the cultural history and the cultural issues that produce this kind of work in the first place. It's not just some sequins and some fringe and a cool hat. There's really something deep going on underneath. And I, I think that proves itself because the amount of work and storytelling that you see that cover these issues, whether it be as a serious thing that you can study in university or whether it be a wonderful run of television shows through the 50s and 60s with some really cool cowboy heroes who very much try to stick to a proper, well-founded, ethical code of behaving. Uh, it's a thick, big pile of stuff to sort through. It is worth every second you could put into it, and the music is phenomenal. And yes, in one short 35-minute record, you really do get all those things. And you get it in a way that makes it fun to listen to and fun to dance to. It's Marty Robbins, folks. Come on. Just listen to the record. Get a cowboy hat. Doesn't matter if other people think you look good in it. Enjoy the music. And with the dawn I'll wake and yawn and carry on to water. Fun fact about Marty's racing career. He wasn't out there driving just any car. He was driving a car that was painted magenta and chartreuse. Balls.
Marty Robbins with all of these things going on in his head, songwriting wise, and all these things he's actively doing between touring and being a race car driver. The man lived really hard. He also had a history of heart trouble towards the later years of his life, three heart attacks in December of 1982. He has to have major heart surgery. He does not recover. And at the age of 57, Marty Robbins leaves us in December of 1982. It's a lot of work, a lot of living to pack into 57 years. So here at number four, Willie Nelson and Family Live from 1978. Whiskey River, take my mind. This record is icing on the Willie Nelson cake of the 1970s. And I, I think Willie has mentioned this himself in interviews. It's certainly the reputation that he carries in a large way. Uh, Willie and his family are a live band. They're a touring machine. They want and need to be on the road. That's where the songs get some extra life. That's where you can, as some musicians say, put the eyebrows on the songs, take them for a little walk in the park. There are lots of expressions for this phenomenon, but basically you're taking a really damn good, well-written song, and when you get it into the hands of the whole band and live on stage, the song can stretch and grow and breathe in a lot of ways beyond whatever you did in the recording studio. And Willie, it's that triple threat. Extraordinary songwriter, fantastic guitar player, and a, a live show, a live presence that it just blows you away. As much as the Allman Brothers or the E Street Band have a great reputation for being a live act that you have to see, yeah, uh, Willie and the family, absolutely. They just come flying out of the gate with Whiskey River, and then because Willie Nelson is a Bob Wills fan and Willie understands the bringing songs from one generation to the next, they follow up with an excellent version of Stay a Little Longer. You know, that's part of the, the dynamic of a good live show or being a good DJ. You want to come out with Boom, hit them really hard with something great, kick that up a notch with something else, and then you dip down a bit and you get into some of those torch, sad ballad type things. And gee, who writes them better than Willie Nelson? Because the next three tracks are Funny How Time Slips Away, Crazy, and then Nightlife. <laughs> course of the 70s kicks out 
phases and stages. The redheaded stranger, which Chris so rightfully points out for the genius of that album. And then Stardust, again, the incredible genius of that album and the wonderful collaboration with Booker T from Stax Records. Uh, and then you have the Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson collaboration start to shape up in this era as well. You have a lot of this um, kind of jump-started by Willie Nelson getting creative control in the studio with the contract he gets for himself in the earlier 70s. So you have all these incredible things he's been doing between like 1973 and 1978. And then in 1978, you take the band out on the road and you celebrate those extraordinary records. And I think for a live country band, they're probably the best thing that hit the road since Bob Wills was out touring in his days. Wow. Just a well-oiled machine kicking butt, taking names, and proving what an extraordinary songwriter and guitar player Willie Nelson truly is. He is an American institution. He is possibly an institution on several other planets as well. That would not surprise me. He's Willie Nelson, folks. Any record of his you get, you're in good shape. Go with the live record again, because it's all the great songs and it's Willie sharing those songs with the audience right there in the moment. It's just fantastic. Will the circle be unbroken by my Lord, my mind? There's a bell on the way in the sky, Lord, in the sky. The things I really appreciate about him as a performer really shine through on this one. The nice thing is Willie has always done this amazing job of bringing the music that motivated and captivated him to his fans. Well, folks, before we get into my final three choices, let's take a quick look back and see what's been going on here in episode five of six string hayride at number 20. I offer Lucinda Williams' Car Wheels on a Gravel Road from 1998. At number 19, the man, the myth, the legend, Johnny Cash, American Recordings, 1994. Number 18, a nice modern look at bluegrass, Americana, folk music, from the year 2000, the O oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. And number 17, the man himself, Ernest Tubb, the Ernest Tubb collection. These are recordings between 1941 and 1967. Number 16, from those crazy hippies in Southern California who turn out to be really sincere traditional bluegrass musicians the nitty-gritty dirt band 1972 will the circle be unbroken number 15 from 1971 chicago institution the maywood mailman the great storyteller of the midwest john prine the debut album number 14 from 1973 the honky-talk hero himself Waylon Jennings, the album is Honky Talk Heroes. 
number 14. Number 13, the sparkling hit machine that is Buck Owens and 21 number one hits. Number 12, they sing beautiful, they fight terrible. Tammy Wynette, George Jones, 1976, Golden Ring. Number 11, the man who invented the high lonesome and gave us bluegrass, the essential Bill Monroe. Number 10, one of the first great jam bands in American music, certainly the big pioneer in Western swing, Bob Wills, the essential recordings. Number nine, a lady with a lot of style, and we're still missing her, Loretta Lynn, coal miner's daughter, 1971. Number eight, the outlaw, the man, Merle Haggard, Mama Tried, 1968. Number seven, all hail the queen, Dolly Parton, the coat of many colors, 1971. Number six, this is my list so I can have two queens. Patsy Cline, Showcase, 1961. Number five, the race car driver, the outlaw, the man who would steal a horse to get back to his lost love, knowing he's going to take a bullet for it. Marty Robbins, 1959, Gunfighter Ballads. Number four. Willie Nelson, American Institution, with his family band, live, 1978. So that takes us to number three. Chris, what am I springing on people here at number three? So this is going to be one we did talk about last time, but there's never a reason to stop talking about this man or this collection. So crossing into the top three, the Hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams, Singles Collection, 1946 to 1953. So that takes us to number three. Chris, what am I springing on people here at number three? So this is going to be one we did talk about last time, but there's never a reason to stop talking about this man or this collection. So crossing into the top three, the Hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams, Singles Collection, 1946 to 1953. It's just impossible to have a credible list of all-time country music and not include the man that we all call the hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams. In just six short years, between 1946 and 1953, Hank gives us an exceptional body of work with a deep literary quality to it. And such an excellent musical quality that even some of these saddest songs are also good dance songs. You can kind of hear your feet going through the sawdust of the dance floor as you listen to these. And you can certainly hear the breaking of the human heart in a lot of these records. When Chris talked about this one for his list, we thought it would be a good idea for some of the song examples to give you the more upbeat stuff. Honky Talkin', Jambalaya, those kind of good time 
uh, dancing songs, Moving On Over. Hank wrote some really upbeat, happy, peppy dance numbers. And we wanted to give you a little bit of that first because we didn't want to bum people out and have them skip the next episode. So here we go with the depth of what Hank Williams is really known for, and that is for basically the saddest songs ever. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep. The news is out all over town that you've been seen a running round from your lonesome past keeps us so far apart why can't i free your doubtful mind and melt your cold cold heart holy geez this guy is not afraid to have his emotions on his sleeve his other sleeve your sleeves there's no feeling left unexpressed here these songs rarely top three minutes and as i alluded to before with the dolly parton example hank touches on some really unique observations that convey a lot of emotional power when we think about living animals in terms of any kind of symbolism or what they represent birds are literally the living animal symbol of freedom flight motion if a bird doesn't like what's going on on the post it's sitting on it just gets up and flies away and that is something that human beings cannot do we get famously stuck in our circumstance especially if it's a hurtful or sad circumstance go in and focus on the bird is this type of image this is way beyond writing a pop song or a boy girl song or some kind of funky dance song this is well it's shakespeare hear that lonesome whippoorwill he sounds too blue to fly the midnight train is whining I'm so lonesome I could cry. That's why the man earns the nickname, the lonesome whippoorwill, too blue to fly. And then he has another lyric where he mentions the robins weep when leaves begin to die. He, obviously, he's good with using the vowel sounds and the rhyme schemes here, but to keep going back to that bird image, you know, I cannot fly away. I'm stuck. I can barely get myself up off the floor. And to contrast that with, you know, how many times have you looked up in the sky, you see a bird, and you just like, oh, wow, that's really cool. It's such an emotionally powerful kind of back and forth in the songwriting. It's extraordinary. And then the other thing you get with Hank Williams that winds up being a true thing there's that old cliche in country music there's a tear in my beer 
There's a tear in my beer Cause I'm crying for you, dear You are on my lonely mind Well, in Hank's case, there really is. And he wrote it. Music for a lot of people, myself included, can be a very spiritual, deep, thoughtful experience. It can be a major food group in your life in terms of how you view what you need to survive in this world. These things all come together. Uh, We take them all in one big, beautiful package. And the man with the words at the top of that package is Hank Williams. Again, you get all the upbeat peppy songs, moving on over, jambalaya, honky talking. And then you get something like cold, cold heart, or you win again. And you just want to give Hank a big hug and hold on to him and tell him it'll be okay. It's a very powerful body of work for peppy fun songs, for incredibly sad gouge your heart out songs. Uh, I don't think anybody else has really done such an exceptional job with both sides of the coin on this one, where you get the heartbreak and you get the honky talk all in one big, beautiful shot. He's Hank Williams and he deserves every compliment and every bit of legend that is thrown his way. Did you ever see a robin weep when leaves began to die? Like me, he's lost the will to live. I'm so lonesome I could cry. So much like with Patsy Cline, we have to play the if he had lived game with Hank Williams. Hank passed away even younger than Patsy, not by much, but by a little bit. And yet he's one of the most impactful voices on the genre as a singer, as a songwriter, as a performer. Everybody that came after Hank seems to have mentioned him as an influence at some point. The man was a giant among men. And here at number two, this is an act that it's tragic that Rolling Stone did not include on their list. And it's practically criminal that I didn't include it on mine. Here we are with the first supergroup of country music. The Carter family. Can the Circle Be Unbroken? A collection of recordings from 1927 to 1939. Jim's going to give us an education on what Sarah and Maybell and AP meant, what they mean now, and why we should love them as much as he does. Well, folks, here we are. Number two, the Carter family. Uh, There's a million things to say about their importance in American culture and American music and what they wound up giving to the whole world. This was the old living room of Mother Maybell's where she and Aunt Sarah used to, well, they sung a lot of songs together here. The two of them singing in this living room and Uncle A.P. coming in when he chose to just a little bit now and then. 
it was a great time that we spent here with Mother, and sometimes I cry about it, but sometimes I try to sing about now, it. This starts with a gentleman named A.P. Carter. He is basically kind of a wandering, artsy-fartsy kind of guy, and in the mid-1920s, that's not very practical. If you A.P. is a guy that likes to sing, he's got an incredible voice, but he's known for leaving home for a week or two at a time and going off in search of other traditional songs. If he hears about a guy three towns over that has a fiddle or a guitar and knows a couple old gospel songs, then AP is going to travel there and study those songs and ultimately take a traditional or some kind of local arrangement and rearrange that, take the writing credit and make it his own. He's very good at this sort of thing. He marries uh, his wife, Sarah, and she's an incredible singer. They do some music together. Her cousin, Sarah's cousin, Maybell, gets married to A.P. Carter's brother, Ezra. So there, all of a sudden, you have the nucleus. Uh, you have A.P. and his wife, Sarah, and then you have Maybell, who is married into the Carter family, along for the ride. Maybell is younger than Sarah, equally brilliant singer as her older cousin. Maybell also takes up the guitar and the auto harp and becomes really the first guitar hero in American music, certainly in country music. She creates a style that becomes known as the Carter Scratch. guitarists still talk about to this day. It was a huge influence on a young Chet Atkins who wound up playing with the Carter family later down the road in their career. In 1927, A.P. Carter hears that a gentleman named Ralph Peer is going to be in Bristol, Tennessee with recording equipment and basically puts an ad in the newspaper looking for singers, looking for songs, offering a chance to record. So AP has to convince Sarah that this is worth doing. She loves singing. She loves music, but she's just fine doing this at home for the family and friends around where they live. So they wind up getting Sarah and Maybell and AP all together. They go to Bristol. They meet with Ralph Peer. They start recording in 1927, and the work immediately becomes hugely popular. We're getting very close to the Depression at this point and the American calendar, and they already live in a very rural, very poor area. And within a year or two, they're making about four times the average working salary, not for a rural person, but for a city person at this point. So their lives change very quickly and very much for the better. One of the first things they do becomes one of the greatest things ever in any kind of music, 
anywhere, anytime, any planet, just period, anywhere. Will the circle be unbroken? This is a traditional song and, and lyric and story that's been around for a while. A.P. Carter manages to take all the little bits and pieces and puts it together in a way that allows him to take the credit for the writing and the arranging. We hear this kind of cliche or, or joke every so often, you know, blah, 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 asking that musical question, blah, blah, blah. Um, that was kind of a cliche of the lounge era of the 50s and 60s. But the Carter family ask the original musical question, will the circle be unbroken? This is a deep, powerful issue of family and faith, not necessarily in the religious sense, but faith in humanity, faith in the way that we live, the things we believe and the hopes that we have as our lives continue, as our families continue. Will the Circle Be Unbroken is the story of a person watching the hearse come to take their deceased mom away to burial. I was standing by the window on one cold and cloudy day and I saw the hearse come rolling and if you ever wonder why country music has such an issue with home and hearth and mama, well, you know, the first great song of country music is Mama Has Died and they are taking her away. And I'm standing there watching all this happen. So wonder no longer with the issue of mama in country music because right from the get-go, first great song, first great story of this type of music, it's watching your deceased mom go off for burial. That is one of the most primal and powerful feelings in human emotion. And that's where the Carter family starts. So they're right from the beginning, they're already so far out in front of everything that people have thought about music at this point. And you get the bonus of this is the beginning of the recording era. So that really conveys the power because, I mean, it's one thing to go, you know, into town and buy the sheet music, bring it home and play the song on the piano. And before, you know, the mid 1920s, that was the most common way of having music in your home. Once you get into the recording era, you know, mostly the Victor Talking Company at this point, you get the ability to hear artists, singers, songwriters, musicians, guitar pickers. You get all of that on one nice hunk of vinyl that you can have in your home and play over and over and over again. Now, through the late 20s and into the early 1930s, AP and Sarah and Maybell continue to record together. They continue to perform together. They do radio together. But AP is kind of an odd duck. And like I said, he leaves home for a week or two every once in a while. Sarah already has young kids by this point, so she's unhappy with that. In 1938, they try to 
keep the act going. They try to revive the situation with AP and Sarah, and they go down to Del Rio, Texas, to radio station XERA. It is known as a border blaster station. At the time, they could reach from Texas to New York City to Alberta, Canada. Regulations were very light at this point, and if you're right on the U.S.-Mexico border, regulations are even lighter. So imagine having a radio station all the way back in 1938 that can hit from Texas to Canada to New York City. The audience and the impact that the Carters have is extraordinary at this point. Uh, So much so that in Georgia, a 14-year-old Chester Atkins builds his own radio. This is a sign of things to come with Chet. But he builds his own radio from a kit, and he starts listening to these broadcasts. And 10, 11 years later, by the time we get to the end of the 1940s, guess who is the guitar player for Maybelle Carter and her daughters on their radio broadcasts? It's Chet Atkins. This is the power of the Carter family. And they not only create the basic foundation building blocks for country music, they create Chet Atkins. Waylon Jennings has often said as a child, one of his favorite memories was his dad taking the battery out of their truck and hooking it up to the radio so they could sit outside the house and listen to the Carter family coming from XERA in Del Rio, Texas. And the reach and the impact is extraordinary. It's 2023 now, and here we are, not the only people still talking about this music and these people. The the trouble part through the 1930s, again, with AP, he just gets weirder and weirder and spends more time away from home. Sarah feels very much neglected. She's home alone with the kids. She is expected to participate in a full and happy way with the musical career, but she's also the only one holding down the home fort. And it's really understandable that she doesn't want to do this anymore. Eventually, her and AP do get divorced in the 1930s. They keep up the happy front for the audience and for the business and for performance sake. But by the time we get to 1944, we're through the Depression, we're getting to the end of World War II, Maybell takes this whole thing upon her own shoulders. And with her daughters, Helen, Anita, and June, they continue the act as the Carter family. So we went from A.P. Carter and his wife, Maybell being the cousin, all of a sudden she becomes the central figure. And from 1944 on, Maybell Carter is sort of the atlas of country music. She has the whole thing up on her shoulders. She is the founder. She is the revered figure. And anything that she does to further the music or to have a hand in encouraging the musicians who are furthering her music it, it takes on a very powerful, almost mythological quality in classic country music. Um, I may do Wildwood Flower on the old harp, if y'all don't mind. I've never recorded it on the old harp, and I've done it with a guitar about a dozen times. But, uh, and I do it in F standard, you know. 
and I'll probably do it in F standard key on the auto harp. And um, thinking tonight of my blue eyes, I'll have to do it the same place. Yeah. And then I don't know where we'll do, uh, will a circle be unbroken? If everybody sings it, you just, you know, get the key that suits everybody. He's a figure of powerful influence backed up by her extraordinary accomplishments and by being one of the three people that starts this whole thing in the first place. They really latch onto something so core and so key with this idea of the unbroken circle. My mother has died. She's going off to be buried. What is going to happen to the family? How will we continue? Uh, this is something that a lot of us you know, think about as you get into your 50s and 60s and you see that you have lost your parents, you've lost a favorite aunt or uncle, you realize that when it comes to family gatherings and holidays and things, you are now among the older folks of your tribe. That's a real unshakable part of life. We watch ourselves get older. We watch ourselves replace people in our family that have left us. It's, you know, the cliche people often say, well, circle of life. Well, it is, and it's true. And this one little three-minute song addresses that in the most extraordinary way that country musicians everywhere keep coming back to this song in droves. You just can't escape it. The Carters ask this question, and then the rest of country music from 1927 on tries to wrestle with that and answer that question. The Carters themselves give us some clues to follow along the way. Their other big signature song is Keep on the Sunny Side. Well, if we're dealing with loss and death and the uncertainty of continuing our place, our family's place in the world, what better thought to fall back on than keep on the sunny side? Though we meet with the darkness and strife, this sunny side we also may be. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day, it will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of life. There's always that little bit of hope, of optimism, that it's worth it to keep pushing through no matter what. You know, the value of the good is always a little bit better than what would come from giving up, from giving into the negative. So through the late 40s, through the 50s, Maybell and her daughters, Helen, Anita, and June, they do more radio appearances for a while, like I said, supported by Chet Atkins. And man, can you imagine that guitar pairing of Maybell Carter and a young Chet Atkins? That had to be just all around fantastic. By the time you get into the mid-1950s, June herself and Maybell for her music draw the attention of a young Johnny Cash. And, you know... Wow, compliments to Johnny, because if you are a huge fan of the Carter family, 
if you are a huge fan of Maybell's guitar playing, if you really want to use your young up and coming musical career to further the music that you grew up with in the Carters, well, what better way to have a crush on June Carter and then in 1968 to wind up getting married to her? Johnny links himself to Maybell and to the Carter family legacy in a way that is both professionally and personally just brilliant. Uh, when Maybell and June, Anita and Helen hear young Johnny coming up in the mid to late fifties, they wind up offering him some support and encouragement. They do radio together. They do some live performances together and these package tours common from that era. And in all his genius, Johnny Cash manages to kind of weasel his way into their lives and becomes the keeper and the spreader of their legacy. I've long been a Carter family fan, as you well know, and I'd love to take Uncle A.P.'s part on one of those final hymns. We'd love to have you, John. How about that, ain't sir? It's something I've mentioned a lot through this episode and through the reasoning, the thoughts, and the feelings behind the music that I'm so attached to. But the Carters ask that question about the circle being unbroken. And I think the answer to them is going to be a resounding, the circle is not broken. These things that tie us together through music, through art, through family, through storytelling, there's always just a little bit more good and a little bit more value than there is compared to the more bleak things of human existence. So listeners, fellow music lovers, your homework every day for the rest of your life is to keep your circle whole, your family, your friends, your community the things you believe in, the things you're trying to push as good from one generation to the next in this world, stick to that. It has great value and it's it's just a profound, deep thing. And it's entertaining as hell and it's philosophical as hell. Keep it as one complete circle and just celebrate all the good things that you have in your life. Can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home awaiting in the sky, Lord, in the sky. Yeah, I was aware of the Carter family, of course, for many, many years, but... I will say that after Jim and I met, I, I definitely began a much deeper appreciation for their music. Uh, I was aware of most of the facts like the Johnny Cash connection and those sorts of things when I was younger. But I think that if anyone who's listening to my voice right now does the same sort of deep dive into this music that I did you're absolutely not going to be disappointed or feel like that was time wasted. There are a couple of things I would like to point out here. The first of which is we often see these sorts of, you know, records of so-and-so has the most albums sold. So-and-so has the most number one hit singles. It's important to note that 
1927, the Carter family got their start. It wasn't until 1944, 17 years later, and certainly after the biggest peak of their career, in terms of their original career, that there was even a Billboard Top Country chart. Songs like Bury Me Beneath the Weeping Willow, My Old Cottage Home, The Church in the Wildwood, including Will the Circle Be Unbroken. These are songs that absolutely would have been smash hit records if there was a chart. There just wasn't a chart. So I would urge anyone who ever starts to look into any of this music, don't get confused or discouraged or put off by the fact that you don't see that they had so many hit singles. Of course they didn't. There was no chart for them to have hits on. But sales figures at the time told a much different story. This is hands down one of the most important groups to the foundation of recorded country music as we know it. The Carters, along with the singing brakeman, Jimmy Rogers, are really the first two massive superstars of the genre. And, you know, I'm just going to echo everything Jim said. Do yourself a favor. Spend the rest of your life keeping your own circle unbroken. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, it, one thing just to kind of clear up, I have seen the song listed in album credits and in books as Will the Circle Be Unbroken? And uh, on the anthology of Carter Family Music, Can the Circle Be Unbroken? Either way, we're being asked a question. And either way, the answer is, you know, hell no. I'm not letting this circle break whatever it takes keep it together it doesn't matter how you ask the question it matters how you answer the question and i think the musical world has given the carter family a resounding yes we are here we're with you we're keeping this thing together the other thing that chris brings up rightfully so about trying to keep track of hits and charts and sales there's no measurable chart for record sales at this point because record sales is a brand new thing. And between 1927 and 1930, we're getting into the period that will be the Great Economic Depression, the crash of 1929. We're certainly at an era where the idea of having a record player, a Victrola in this case in your home, is not a common thing. But in those first two and a half years that they're recording, the Carters sell 300,000 records. Again, record players are not very common. There's relatively new technology. You're getting an audience that they have to start is mostly a rural audience. There's a lot of poverty. And then a year and a half into their career, the Depression hits. 300,000 records sold in that early formative period of the business is really extraordinary because there's barely that many record players to begin with. There's not a lot of fun cash, disposable cash income in these families at this point. To have something that's so incredible that people will give something up to be able to afford to buy your thing, that's all you need to know about hit singles and chart positions and economic impact because almost a hundred years later we still sing keep on the sunny side 
that's still a real song that tons of people know. There's your chart success right there. The human chart is still singing your song almost 100 years later. It's a hit. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way if we keep on the sunny side of life. Jim mentioned that in 1927, the Carter family was part of the Ralph Peer Bristol Sessions. And of course, who did Mr. Peer work for? The Victor Talking Machine Company. So, listeners, if you're trying to figure out why Nipper is part of our logo, if you're trying to figure out why we do the 12 Nippers of Christmas, now you know. Live from Springfield Penitentiary's fabulous big open area in Cell Block D, it's the Krusty the Clown Prison Special. Slugs some jerk in Tahoe, they gave me one to three. My high-priced lawyer sprung me on a technicality. I'm just visiting Springfield Prison. I get to sleep at home tonight. And here we are. Finally, the number one spot on Jim's list. Now, I don't think that this one is going to come as a surprise to very many of the listeners. It certainly doesn't come as a surprise to me because Jim kind of took a cop out here and he chose two albums. We did a special episode about them already, but the man can never say enough about these two albums. So here at number one on Jim's list, we have Johnny Cash with at Folsom and at San Quentin, 1968 and 1969. Jim. Well, thanks, Chris. Uh, yeah, I'm sure overly obvious, but let me fix something here right away. It's difficult to look at these records as separate. They are within a year of each other. You have live at Folsom, a well-known prison in California. You have live at San Quentin, a well-known prison in California. And you have these two records representing this revival and real turning point in Johnny Cash's career and in his personal life. Uh, later in the 70s, people would talk about the first Godfather and then the second Godfather movie is kind of a single entity. By the end of the 70s, you get that with the original Star Wars movie and then The Empire Strikes Back. And in both those film cases, you can really argue where the second one is superior to the first one, but the second one would have never happened without the first one. That's really my thinking about these two records. Folsom is the reason that San Quentin happens. But to me, and so that my lovely and talented co-host will no longer refer to this as a cop-out, San Quentin is the number one album for me on this list. Folsom is the masterpiece that nudges the door open. San Quentin is the record that kicks the door through and does not stop moving forward. So let's be clear about that right away. 
it's kind of a tie, but no. If I have to pick one, listeners, it is Johnny Cash live at San Quentin uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, First, the actual proper objective Johnny-related reasons. He spends most of the 60s in a haze of pills, getting arrested here and there, never spending more than a night in jail. I found myself surrounded. One policeman said, that's him. Come along, wildflower child. Don't you know that it's 2 a.m.? They're bound to get you because they got a curfew. And you go to the Starkville City Jail. Breaks out his marriage to Vivian, the mother of his daughter, Roseanne. His personal life is a mess. He's almost at that George Jones point where he's not showing up for gigs. The reason not showing up for gigs isn't a problem for Cash at this point is because not a lot of people are offering him gigs because it's really just gotten that bad. If you see pictures of Johnny Cash from the early to mid-60s, you see a guy who is skinnier and more frail-looking than Hank Williams you'd swear a wind would just carry him away and his face looks really sunken in and just really the guy just looks beat to hell he looks like he hasn't slept in about 150 years the pills and the drinking encourage a lot of weight loss he's smoking cigarettes a lot he just looks downright awful how he managed to spiff himself up enough to capture the heart of june carter this is yet another testament to the great talent and mystery that is johnny cash well june you know what i'm a big fan of yours i'd like you to do your uh your thing your own thing you know you've got a great heritage your mother maybell carter and uncle ap were the first family of country music and uh I remember listening when I was a little bitty boy. I've been a fan of yours since I was that tall. I was listening on the radio as soon as I was old enough to listen. I was out there listening in Arkansas. I was in Arkansas, and you were on the Mexican border stations, 500,000 watts, clear channel. Hear you all the way to the North Pole. I could sit down by a barbed wire fence in Arkansas and hear you singing on the barbed wire. My grandpa said he could hear you on his false teeth. Johnny Cash is trying to do is let you all know that I'm older than he is. Now, that's a mean thing for a man to do to his wife. I'm just a little bit older than he is, but I deserve to be. By the time I got in his life, he had so many miles on him. There's no way I'll ever catch up with him. So around 1967, early 1968, he's been spending a lot of time with Maybell and with June Maybell and June move into Johnny's house in Hendersonville, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And through 1967, Johnny really gets his act together. There's a small setback for Johnny during this time, both professionally and personally, because of the death of his dear friend and guitar player, Luther Perkins. Part of how Johnny deals with this is to re-embrace his friendship with his old Sun Records buddy and no relation to Luther, the great Carl Perkins. Fantastic guitar player, great songwriter, 
uh, one of the four horsemen of Sun Records in the Rockabilly era, along with Johnny Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, the two men basically get their act together through this time. In 1968, Folsom happens. Johnny loses Luther Perkins shortly after that. And by the time we get to San Quentin, we have a sober and healthy Johnny Cash with a sober and healthy Carl Perkins at his side. And all of this is supported by the great heart, soul, and musical legacy of the woman that now everybody calls Mother Maybelle Carter. Johnny pulls this incredible super fan move and marries June Carter. You know, for all the young women out there that thought, oh, I'm going to marry a Beatle or I'm going to marry a Rolling Stone or whatever your thing was, Johnny's like, well, I really dig the Carter family. Maybell has three daughters. My chances look pretty good here, percentage-wise. And yeah, him and June have this poorly kept secret of a love affair through the mid-60s. And in 1968, she's divorced, he's divorced, they get married. And then you really get not just the professional and the musical, but the personal connection where... Johnny Cash and June Carter as a family, as a team, pick up the mantle of the original Carter family of AP and Sarah. And with Maybell still there in the mix and with her very public blessing, Johnny becomes the keeper of really the great founding institution in country music. The success that Johnny has in 1968 and 1969 with the Folsom album and then doubly so with San Quentin, this really takes the Carter family legacy and brings it to the attention of the audience in the late 60s through the 70s. Johnny himself, his, his personal image, the power of the music and the fact that he records these two just groundbreaking albums in prisons helps to give rise to the outlaw movement in country music in the 70s that carries on to the 80s. What Johnny Cash and June Carter do in 1968 and 1969, to me, is the single greatest example of taking the history of their music, preserving it, updating it, spreading it to a new younger audience and then making sure that that creates his own next wave in music you know being the outlaw trend johnny of course has that second great renaissance period through the later 90s and the early 2000s with the american recordings but he wouldn't have gotten there if he hadn't done this and my personal reasons for picking San Quentin as the better of the two, I think musically it's better. You have Wreck of the Old 97. Oh, that brave engineer that run old 97 is lying in old Danville's head. Cause he was going down a grave making 90 miles an hour. The whistle broke into a stream. He was found in the wreck with his hand on the throttle. Called it to death by the scene. One more time. Yeah. You have 
Wanted Man, his songwriting collaboration with Bob Dylan. You have the great Shel Silverstein thrown out, Boy Named Sue. And when you watch the video of the concert, you can see Carl Perkins kind of leaning right over Johnny's shoulder, looking at the music stand, because they had not played this live before. The song had just come to them recently. They threw it together real quick. But yeah, this is how good of a guitar player Carl Perkins is. He's kind of leaning over, looking at Johnny's shoulder, occasionally looking at the music stand, occasionally looking at Johnny's hand on the guitar, and he just puts in all the right parts. Was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from lots of folks. It seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue There, real time, as it's happening It's complete improv And it's just utterly fantastic The other thing that Carl Perkins brings to this record Is the answer to AP and to Sarah And to Mother Maybell, who is right there As this is happening Carl Perkins writes a song called Daddy Sang Bass. And the chorus, the refrain in the song is The Circle Will Not Be Broken. And it's a direct sequel, a direct response coming in the late 60s, 40 years after Maybell and Sarah and AP were asking the question originally. And it's just a powerful performance of the song on the San Quentin album. Johnny rightfully thanks Carl Perkins for writing the song. And Carl Perkins wrote us another song that tells about the reason for it all. It takes us back home and again tells it like it was when I was a little bitty kid. And we gathered around the piano and me and little brother would join in and mama sang tenor and daddy sang bass. They perform it together. You have June and Maybell right there singing in the back. This really just ties everything together in country music. You have the Carters, the first family. You have the man they choose to pass the torch off to in Johnny Cash. And from 1969 on, Johnny just really cements himself as an institution in music, as just a complete and utter force of nature And all that spills over into TV show. He does some movie work. He does a few guest spots on the Columbo detective show uh, later on in the 70s and 80s. He writes a book. Through the 90s, he's on the David Letterman show quite a lot. And you can tell that Letterman just is really in awe of the guy. And he gives Johnny a platform to tell some stories, to sing some songs. Afternoon, when I saw you and some friends of yours come down the uh, the sixth floor hallway, there is such an overwhelming presence that that you give off or that you have. It's just I can't imagine you walking down the streets of this city without being just besieged by folks. Do you have trouble with that? Well, not really trouble. We, you know, I don't lock myself away. I enjoy my freedom. I enjoy. I enjoy New York City. You get out and, and mingle with the folks? Yeah, I go to movies. I... My personal reasons for this is, is this record is something I grew up with and kind of haunted me in a, in a weird way. Uh, my dad was an incredibly huge Johnny Cash fan, just 
all around cuckoo nuts for the guy. And at this point, I completely understand why. When I was a little kid, it was a big deal when my dad would haul out his Sears guitar and plug it in. And he mostly knew Wreck of the Old 97. And he mostly knew Wabash Cannonball. It was, in hindsight, just kind of fun to watch him have fun. Uh, he passed away when I was about eight. And that record was just something that was always around before and after. I would see him pull it out and listen to it. And in a room with dim light, because you're sitting in your comfy chair listening to an album, it, the cover of the San Quentin album is this weird kind of bluish, very iconic photo of Johnny Cash from the San Quentin concert. But in a dimly lit room, the record just takes on an odd coloring. And to a kid that's six, seven years old, it, it just looks kind of weird and alien. And I have had the good fortune to see Johnny and June perform a few times in the early 90s before he got really huge again. And I've said this before on the Hayride. I, to this day, the guy had to be at least 50 feet tall and just put out this light that was just extraordinary. Um, it's an incredible musical accomplishment. You get Johnny not only doing the hits like we talked about with Boy Named Sue or Wanted Man, Wreck of the Old 97 was a song Johnny had been playing for a while and was very popular with his audience. But he touches deep into the prison mentality and, and really reaches out to the prison community with the song San Quentin, which he wrote specifically for this. It's a debut performance and recording on this album. San Quentin, you've been living hell to me. You blistered me since 1963. I've seen them come and go and I've seen them die. And long ago I stopped asking why. It really packs a wallop, as they say. And then, of course, as I mentioned, the other thing is the Carl Perkins composition, Daddy Sang Bass. Though the circle won't be broken, by and by, Lord, by and by, Daddy Sang Bass. In the sky, Lord, in the sky. This really wraps up everything for my list and for my thoughts about Johnny and June in the best way possible, because they are answering to AP and to Sarah and to Maybell. And it's basically, don't worry, we got this. We will protect the circle. We will protect the things that are near and dear to us. And we will make sure that the next several generations learn about this direct from the source. Okay, folks, next time on the Hayride, we're going to come at you with some country rock crossovers. We're going to take some songs that were done by mainstream rock artists that clearly have a country vibe or are just straight up pure country music. We'll talk to you next time. In the meantime, don't forget facebook.com slash six string hayride. 
You can email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. And we have our Patreon page up at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash sixstringhayride. We'll talk to you next time, folks. Force will be with you 